Hello. I don't even know that shirt that he's wearing. Is that a Fantastic Four shirt? But it has a half in it. I don't even know. I can't place that. It's, uh, I always want to say Mark Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. I know who it is. Oh, sorry. Come on, man. Uh, that is one of Edgar Wright's mini uh, sly uh, little Easter eggs. Have you ever seen yes, the movie? Come on. Come on. I'm just asking you about the T-shirt. Are you familiar with, with Edgar Wright? Uh, um, because he just had the big blowout with, uh, with what's her name and he's in danger of becoming the four and a half. Th- uh, so it's not a fantastic four shirt. Well, he, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's based on a fantastic four shirt. I happen to own one of these shirts. That's why it looks familiar. All a right. Very, and so the half is, the half is added to the fantastic yes. four logo. I bought yeah. one, man. You don't want to buy your licensed quote unquote stuff. You got to be careful on the Amazon. This thing arrives. Oof. It does not really look like this. This is very poorly made. So anyway, I got to get out of the change my icon racket. It's just it's too much pressure, you know. Do it to yourself. I do it to myself. You do, you, you do it. That's to why me. it really hurts. Yeah. You do it to yourself. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. Just you. Just you and no one else. Only only I know to know how to make it hurt so good. Mm-hmm. I'm clicking. Good save. Um, I had some fried food for dinner. Hmm. How are you? Same old. We've gotten a lot of interest and feedback from listeners about the nature of your bird enemy. Um, there have been many, many, many suggestions for things to do. Good job. Thank you. God damn it. Don't make me hit the bell. Many. <clears throat> I hate you so profoundly. <laughs> See, you uh, can do it. We've gotten a lot of uh, follow, follow. <laughs> got a lot of feedback from listeners who are interested about how things are going with your bird enemy. They sent lots of suggestions for things. I mean, we can't even really probably cover them all. Super soakers, uh, well, like shooting donuts at it or something with the wrist rocket. There, there have been many suggestions. I just wanted to check in on behalf of our listeners. Where do things stand with you and your uh, bird enemy? It's kind of a boring answer. So for some reason, he no longer is interested in playing my house as an instrument, at least during the times that I've been home. Like, he's off of that. He's not doing that anymore. Good. He He's still out there. Not really close to my yard, but pretty much across the street. So he's a little bit more distant, and he's doing his song thing. I sent you a little clip of his, his lovely song, which is very loud and very annoying. And just just to let our listeners know, it is, yes, it, I can just confirm it is very loud and super annoying. It's the kind of thing that, like, a repetitious sound that you would soon grow very cross about. It's not melodic in any way, and it's pretty darn loud, Because, and that's that's across the street. Now, I don't know what drove him away from my house. It wasn't me. It wasn't anything that I did. Um, mm. As far as I'm aware, it's nothing that changed. He's far enough away now that I can't really use any projectile-based solutions because he's basically in like a neighbor's tree, right? Oh, so man. You can't really go to your neighbor's lawn and throw things or shoot things in the direction of their house or like go onto their lawn and do it in the opposite direction as they land in the street, so on and so forth. Uh, one of the most popular suggestions were water-based things, and I definitely thought of that. But my house is pretty high, my chimney is pretty high, my water pressure, I don't have any of those like nozzles that will go for distance, really. Right, the, right, The right. super soaker type solutions, it's kind of a good suggestion, except I think people 
overestimate exactly how far super soakers shoot shoot vertically i'm sure there's some big mega it, it'll one. get close but there won't be much there won't be much thrust yeah it. like this this stream sort of disintegrates at a certain point it's surprisingly hard to get high pressure water in a targeted manner up there but even if you could just get it like make it like it's raining and if it rains the thing will go away but like i said it, it has decamped from my chimney and i don't know why and i'm just taking that as a win and i'm thinking about ways to encourage it to go farther down the street or something but for now i've got nothing well i hope you'll continue to monitor the situation this could just be a little <laughs> respite because if that person you know how it is you know yeah. you just uh you need only need a slightly better lock than your neighbor you know so what if what if the what if that person has a solution and then it comes back to you yeah i don't i have no choice but to monitor the situation that's the way it is <laughs> i completely understand i would like to not monitor it yeah but I love some of the suggestions. Well, some of them were frankly mental, uh, and some of them were uh, were very interesting. Would you have any favorites? Oh, oh, the other, the other really popular one was, "Oh, get a drone," which is a half joke suggestion and a half serious one because it's like, "Hey, you have an excuse to buy a fun, you know, expensive toy, and then you can get up there with a the drone and like annoy the bird, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, beat him at his own game." Like we have, we have the technology. We can get right up there in your it's face. Just gotta go, go provoke the bird. First thing I thought of when people suggested drone things was that trying to deal with wildlife on its own terms in that way is, I'd say, sinking to their level. But uh, it is not. It is not a game that we are equipped to win in that manner. Mm-hmm. We win by like building tiny machines that have an explosion that propels a little piece of metal very quickly in exactly the direction we want. That's how we win. As That's a good way to put it. Tool, tool using monkeys. If you've ever seen those videos of, I forget what it is, some, maybe it was an airport or some country or whatever, where they had like a, uh, a falcon dude out there uh, sending, or, or maybe it was a hawk or whatever, sending birds of prey after drones. The drones lose, and they lose big. <laughs> really because you know, th- those things are birds all day long for life exactly like the millions of years of evolution for these you know predatory birds uh and your thing is just a sitting duck it is like it's like an injured dove just an injured buzzing dove and it's like it's too bad they can't actually eat it but you know they're trained well <laughs> enough to say like it's no contest you know and now i understand this little woodpecker is not you know a bird of prey but i just feel like i, I don't want to engage at that level um that's philosophically speaking. I think it's it, it's it is philosophical. It's also practical, though. I mean, it's I, I the analogy that I use is like it's it's fighting a it's like fighting a frat boy, like you know, or wrestling a pig. You know what I mean? You you are at a severe disadvantage against somebody who does this all the time and enjoys it even more. Yeah, they, like why are you accepting their terms of there are you know their terms for the uh, for the battle here? Like oh, it must be flying thing versus flying thing, and you've you've slapped together this rudimentary flying thing with computers and propellers. <laughs> And I mean, honestly, <laughs> if, a, if a woodpecker's brain wasn't the size of, you know, a, a peanut, it could destroy the drone, too, because this thing, it has better in-air control. It could just sit on top of your drone and, like, just flip it around and smash it to the ground and do whatever the hell it wants with it. Now, I suppose it could get a really huge one that it couldn't do anything with or maybe it would get caught in the propellers or something, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway, I do have a drone. I got my son a drone. Oh, nice. Uh, a year or so ago. I'm not that great at flying it. The the most likely outcome of me going after this thing with the drone that I have is that it gets stuck on my roof. 
you know, it's not it's not a very fancy drone. It's and one now of we're back to the situation where you got to get on the roof. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, the drone thing is out. Although I think for most people it was a joke. But if they're if they think that just because they want me to buy a drone, I've already done that and we fly it in the park and it's fun. And I'm not particularly good at controlling it. Like I said, it's not one of the nice ones that <laughs> has extremely good control. It has right. medium good control. It was cheap. But like now, speaking of getting in a fight, though, <laughs> I imagine it, it is a little bit like thinking like I just need to get like the Sigourney Weaver like cargo loader from Alien 2. Like <laughs> I'll be able to. I'm essentially like a mech at that point. <laughs> like I could be. I could defeat any foe. Yeah, but then somebody I, I, gets all big Hero, Hero Six on you and just like makes you fall over or something. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I was like, why don't I just, you know, do that thing where you, you know, tape a bunch of feathers to your arms and I'll run at the house and flap. <laughs> I'll, I'll get right up there. Yeah. Um, you ever look at uh, videos of birds that fly fast? Uh, You've probably seen some. Like the ones that go like straight down and dive into yeah, the water. Yeah, you ever seen like seen a peregrine ones. falcon video? Not those. I'm thinking, I'm thinking <laughs> of the ones like that go. Euphemism. Yeah, the ones that go into the water, like they get the fish that are in, they dive from yeah. Rehab and they, they go down into the water. Those are cool to look at. Peregrine falcon uh, goes over 200 miles per hour when it's diving. Isn't that amazing? It just does just this this really, I guess, aerodynamic, like dead drop. Just an mm-hmm. amazing animal. Super freaky. It's big eyes. Well, oh, wow, that's a very interesting bird. I'm fascinated and terrified by birds. I think they're fascinating. I think they're terrifying. The older I get, the more I'm disturbed by birds' eyes. That's why you tell them your secrets, right? Shh. That's some fried chicken. I'm a little bit out of it. What other things are? Uh, what other things are on your mind? Popcorn, popcorn with a spoon. Yes, yes. yes. Well, we'll get to that. But no, we have no, this we're not talking about you... this. We're not talking about this. Well, at least you can tell us why we're not talking about it. I'll tell you off air. It's for a silly reason, and I'll tell you off air. <sighs> All right. Fine. <laughs> uh, the other day, even say yesterday on the internet, uh, a friend of the show, uh, I almost said Alex Jones, Alex Cox from the Cards Against Humanity uh, company was asking, it was basically a poll to say like, am I the only person? Is it weird that I eat popcorn with a spoon? And every good right-thinking American, except for Todd Vizieri, responded by saying, you've got to be kidding me. That was one of the tweets that you read, and and like like so many things, you're like, is this a joke slash troll is this that I'm weird not Twitter? not in on? Like, right. is that is the joke that there is a thing on Twitter where people ask, "Am I the only person who insert absurd thing?" And yeah. the, the game was then try to come up with the most absurd sounding thing you could to say, "Hey, am I the only person who?" And they came up with popcorn uh, eating popcorn with a spoon. And so, should you be saying, "Good job, that's a good one," you really? you really took that th- thing to the nth degree or is this person serious? Yeah. And it, it took me a while to puzzle that out because you can't judge by the replies because who knows lots of other people could be in on or not in on the joke along with you. But eventually it became clear to me pretty sure, right? That this is a serious thing. Yes. Alex, Alex has as a super taster like you and mm-hmm. she has a very, I would say a rather unusual diet. She drinks a lot of, um, of energy drinks she mainly likes white food. Our powders. And she, of course, her powders. <laughs> but she, um, and she likes to eat weird things. Like she's, uh, she's tasted her iPhone cases and stuff like that. There's a whole, you know, whole history here. Yeah. What, what, what's, the, what's the white food thing? I missed that. Oh, you know, she's one of those people that mostly likes white food. Racist. I get it. Food racist. Food racist. <laughs> but no, she has unusual uh, culinary directions and is very sensitive to the taste of things. So I saw it and I was like, this is, this is terrible. I, I don't know why I, I thought it was weird, but I thought it was very weird. 
And what was your thought? You don't know why you thought it was weird? Because this is one of those <laughs> things where, like, uh, what I immediately thought of is the the Seinfeld episode where yeah, of the, someone at the restaurant eats the Snickers bar or whatever with a knife and a fork. Kramer, Kramer starts eating uh, Three Musketeers bars or Snickers bars with a with a whatever knife and it was, fork. yeah. Yeah. Chocolate bar. With a knife. And that's, like, seen as sophisticated. And, like, it's a weird thing because people think, oh, you chocolate bar, you don't eat that way. But you see someone eat that way, and then it becomes a whole thing. That's the joke of the show. Right. I'm not, I don't think I've ever seen anyone eat a chocolate bar with a knife and a fork, but I feel like it is more within the realm of my imagination than someone eating popcorn with a spoon, which I have never seen, never thought of, never conceived, never seen parodied, never heard mentioned. This is like a new thought technology, but in a bad way, like Mm -hmm. an unprecedented combination of ideas that. I was happier not knowing existed in this universe. And now not only does it exist, but it is a thing someone seriously does. Multiple people that we know actually do. And it has really, really shaken me. But there's a continuum, right? I mean, there is... So on the continuum of... Uh, it's a... Let's see here. 1994 episode, The Pledge Drive uh, of Seinfeld. On the continuum, uh, eating Snickers with a knife and fork... Eating popcorn out of a bowl with a spoon, eating a slice of pizza with a knife and fork. Well, g- give me the continuum about where those go. All right. So pizza with knife and fork. Uh, let's put that. Like We're on a scale that's going to go from uh, zero, which marks the line between acceptable and not acceptable. I'm going to put pizza with a knife and a fork either at zero if you're a little kid or like towards like negative one. Or something if you're not right okay all right all right snickers bar with a knife and a fork negative three mm-hmm. uh popcorn with a spoon say negative five or six hundred somewhere in the hundreds <laughs> wow it is blowing my mind and i'll tell you why not because like oh it's a weird you do a weird thing you do a thing differently than we do like for example that one example i tweeted back is like cutting corn off the cob right which i would call a probably like a Somewhere hovering around zero, maybe positive, maybe negative. Obviously, because it, it undermines it undermines the corn. Obviously, if you have braces, that's the thing you have to do a lot of times. The whole fun the, is the cob, the, the corn off the cob, right? Right. Yeah. But still, but I still feel like that is, you know, most people eat it on the cob. It's a fun part of the food, but to cut it off, it's hovering around zero. I think it's within the realm of normalcy. Sometimes there are legit reasons to do it, but popcorn with a spoon, popcorn with a spoon just blows my mind. Not because it is like odd or weird i'm trying to think of all the sort of odd, odd everyone has their own way he thinks that's fine it's because it like it flies in the face of the core of what popcorn is like cutting your chocolate bar up with a knife and a fork i feel like if you did that it's weird but the chocolate bar still tastes like a chocolate bar i feel like the experience of eating it is not changed that much corn on the cob on the cob off the cob it still tastes like corn you lose the on the cob experience but Cutting it off doesn't ruin it. It just becomes another form of corn, which is an acceptable thing. But putting a spoon into popcorn, popcorn, which is so light, it's practically as light as there. And you take a metal spoon and you just just trying to get anything on this metal spoon. Like, because, you know, the popcorn kernels are just going to skitter right off. Like, they're not even they don't want to be on the spoon at all. They do not want to have anything to do with that spoon. And they're so light and airy. And then bringing up. I mean, how many kernels can you even fit on there? And then trying to open your mouth wide enough to fit the metal spoon that's like clacking against your teeth and the, the pile of popcorn that you hope to get on there or just, is just one kernel at a time and put like, put that into your mouth. And the contrast between 
the like lighter than air popcorn kernel now which is like jammed up against the roof of your mouth because it's on top of a metal spoon and the metal spoon clanging against your teeth and it's just it is at odds with the entirety of the being of popcorn forget about the, the you know i like it ruins popcorn I would not, I would say, I no longer want to eat this popcorn. If you wow. gave me a chocolate bar, a knife, and a fork, I'm like, all right, I'll eat it with a knife and a fork or whatever. But I I would rather not have popcorn than be forced in some sort of weird shipping container in the desert scenario to eat <laughs> to eat popcorn with a, with a spoon, like a kernel or two at a time. It's just, it's... <laughs> it's just not right and it it's unpleasant and it makes popcorn bad and i don't understand anyone who would choose to do that ever what do you what do you say to her uh, contention that if it's you know uh, maybe it was her or todd that said this i don't remember who but that if it's like if it's greasy salty you don't want to get it on your fingers it's it's better to enjoy it with a spoon <sighs> like finger food is a thing like uh french fries are greasy salty too and here's the thing I, it's not like i'm saying you you have to get your hands dirty like wear latex gloves if you have to if you, this is a big problem for you right but the spoon the spoon like a fork would be better let me put it this way i think a fork would be better because Ooh. then at least you can stab a kernel and pull it off the tines of the fork in a reasonable way it's very inefficient but still better than a spoon Again, it's like trying to scoop up like styrofoam peanuts with with a spoon. Like it's not like chopsticks would be better too. I hadn't thought about your point about lightness and the resistance to the spoon. That they don't really want to be on the spoon. Like it's like picking up styrofoam, you know. Yeah, with a try spoon. it. Like I, everyone should. This should be a project. Oh, everyone should it. make yeah. make some popcorn. Get a spoon. And just see if you literally can eat popcorn. And not just like one kernel and go, ha ha, I did it. Take like a normal serving of popcorn. You're going to sit down, you're going to watch a movie, you're going to make some popcorn. Yeah, I, think, I think what you do is you go- eat it all with a spoon. I think you go to the movies, you go to the cinema, you get the yeah, popcorn, whatever, whatever popcorn you normally get, and you know how much of it you actually eat, but mm-hmm. you also happen to have a teaspoon with you or, or a tablespoon. Let's let's allow it. You, you bring a tablespoon. What could yeah, it be that, bigger, bigger than a tablespoon? The bigger spoon is almost worse because then you can fit more on the spoon and you have to open your mouth to some absurd degree to get this pile of like incompressible, airy- Yeah. Popcorn, again, which is now pressed up against the roof of your mouth as you try to put the mouth full. It, it is the wrong tool for the job, and it is bad. Uh-huh. Bad. You make it sound bad when you put it that way. It's very bad. I'm, I I think this is a thing that we should all do. Like, try to actually eat your normal serving of popcorn with a spoon. Oh, I'm going to do it. it. Yeah. It, it's harrowing. It will, it, will, it will probably age you like the presidency. Mm. <laughs> um... Yeah. See, I usually go the other way. See, I've kind of devolved uh, as an eater. I eat a lot more stuff with my hands. <laughs> Just put your face right in the bowl at this point. <laughs> I do have dignity. <laughs> when people are watching. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Jamf Now. You can learn more about Jamf Now by visiting jamf.com slash diffs. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. And now you can manage your Apple devices from anywhere with Jamf Now. When you first start your business, it's pretty easy to keep track of your own computer and phone. But as you grow, you start to buy more tech for your employees. It gets harder to keep track of everyone's Macs, their iPhones, their iPads. And then trying to figure out how to secure the iPad that your sales rep just lost can be tough, especially when you're all in different locations. Jamf Now makes this and a whole lot more much easier. You can configure settings, protect sensitive information, and even lock or wipe a device from absolutely anywhere. Jamf now secures your stuff. 
so you can focus on your business instead. There is no IT expertise needed. That's why you hire Jamf now. Boom. So you can find out more and create your free account today at jamf.com slash diffs, jamf.com slash diffs. And because you listen to our program, you'll be able to start securing your business immediately by registering your first three devices for free. You can add more for just two bucks a month per device. That's bananas. So go now, please. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash diffs. That's jamf.com slash d-i-f-f-s. Our thanks to Jamf Now for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. But uh, yeah, like tonight, my, my wife went and picked up uh, our local like meat, meat like butcher shop slash sandwich place has this new like pickup service where you can like come in and just zing in and pick up a chicken it's like it's nicer than the stuff you get at safeway so she got pulled pork she got some ribs um she got some of those hawaiian rolls my daughter loves and she got a couple fried chicken thighs and I, you know i, I had a I used a fork why am i telling you this i used a fork to dispense the stuff from the serving the paper dish thing to mm-hmm. my plate and then like, I think I brought the fork with me, but I ate the entire thing with my hands. Well, it was a chicken thigh on the bone, right? I think so. Yeah, it was very, and very was breaded. I ended up taking all the bread breaded, like yeah. uh, KFC style. That's the only way to eat a chicken thigh, right? That's finger food. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you can cut it too. Like sure. both of them work and neither one of them ruins the chicken. It's just like whatever you want to do. Well, we, we've had our chicken talk episode, but yeah, there's that. Then the uh, the ribs, obviously, you're probably, unless you're a real weirdo, you're going to eat them that way. Uh, and, but again, I would say if you cut the meat off the ribs with a knife and fork and cut it up into pieces and eat it, it's still fine. Yeah. Like, eating meat with a fork that you cut up into pieces is still fine. It's still within the realm of reason. Ah, <sighs> boy, it's thorny. It's thorny. And well, you, uh, need, you need to you need to delve into this deep on, on your podcast uh, that you do with uh, this lovely lady okay. and figure out like. Like how how this happened? Is it a family thing? Is it some sort of childhood trauma involving popcorn and and butter and salt and like paper cuts on the fingers or like Oof. like how does how does this come? Same thing with Todd. We have to to find out like what how is this happening? Where is this coming from? My Todd's like a sphinx. I just can't figure that guy out. He's got a lot of angles. He's got all he's got all this movie uh, knowledge and background, and yet doesn't know how to eat popcorn. Mm. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having that kind of combination in life? He's got, he's so popcorn adjacent, so much of his career. He's, he's, he's his own Henry James story. Hmm. It's kind of tragic. I couldn't think of a Henry James. Is that the uh, turning of the screw? Is that him? Am I getting it right? Is the, the gift of the Magi, right? Oh, Jesus, John. Oh, Henry. Uh, you, you got a, oh, Henry. Yeah, we're in the ballpark. It's yeah. like a Markov chain. Just join the words. Is that uh, Markov's law? That if you uh, see the string on the uh, wall, you've got to deploy it to product. <laughs> Okay. I'm gonna stop going short for... on that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and just yeah. I'm gonna give myself a yellow card. Abort, abort. <laughs> smile, you're in candid dignity. <laughs> mm. It's foggy here. I'm wearing a scarf. That's how you can tell it's San Francisco, right? Uh it was so nice and now it's all foggy. I'm not loving it. And then now, you know, the summer comes and it's just like you know, cold time. Ooh. You know what? You know, let's let's keep this a reasonable length tonight. I make no promises. We're not trying to save Mike. He abandoned us. That's we right. Don't owe him anything. It's inside baseball. Well, if you're not gonna let, you know what? You don't you don't have to be involved in this. But I'm gonna say this, and you, we can cut this out if you want. I just would like to say two things. John thinks this is too inside baseball to talk about it, and no one will care. I'm gonna say it because <laughs> I don't even remember what I deleted from the notes, but you will now remind me. Yes. Uh, you know there are two uh, bits of housekeeping administrivia. 
that involved the same uh, new fact, which is that since this show started in something like July 2015, so like about two years, uh, since we've done this, our friend Mike Hurley has been the editor of the show. And they do, the, not to go too into it, but th- we have a great relationship with them. They have been fantastic. Speaking for myself, I think John probably doesn't like them. But I, I, I've, they've been so great to work with. And Mike, poor Mike Hurley, has edited this podcast for something like 48, 49 episodes. He has had so many TV shows and movies spoiled for him. And Mike has not seen that movie, that many movies. He basically, he listens to that uh, that Beats Radio thing with uh, the guy in England, but I, I think that he hasn't seen many movies. So, you know, we ruined him on that. So I, And then, uh, so he's got to go do business. He's got work to do. This is his year of, what is this his year of? What is he calling it? Are you up there? Uh, Are you caught up? Uh, yeah, on? I am caught up, but I'm, it's not, the Gray's the, having redire- his... redirection was gray. Yeah. Mike was, Mike is one behind. So it's, is it his year of less now? I forget. Yeah. He's, he's doing a year of something, but I think he's, you know, quite understandably for a productive young man, his age, he's, uh, you know, he's got to work on other stuff. And so Mike has handed off the uh, duties to our friend, Jim Metzendorf, who is a delight to work with. And he's a good man and thorough. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge, A, thank you very much to Mike Hurley, who we continue to work with. I'd like to thank Mike for doing all those episodes. And I'd also like to thank our friend Jim. You probably didn't notice any difference at all because Jim's really ace and he's really, really good. And uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. Thank you to, to Mike uh, and to Jim. And if you're ever looking for somebody who's good to edit, you can always hire Jim. He's a really good man. I have two minds about spoiling things for Mike. One, I feel like if he was going to bail on editing the show, he should have done it way earlier for the reasons you stated, like you would have avoided all these spoilers. But on the other hand, the more I listen to Mike in the movies, the more I realize he doesn't know what a good movie is. So it's kind of like these movies that were spoiling for him yeah. that we really like, he would hate them anyway. So it's fine. And now, I mean, they could say the kinds of things that you're saying now, because he's not going to hear the show anymore. Exactly. So we can, we could speak freely about him mm-hmm. and, and all the orange things that he likes in his life. He's really, likes, doesn't he really like the color orange? He, he likes very strange colors. That's one thing I always mm-hmm. notice about him. He has very odd taste. Well, like I said, I, visiting London, Got me more on his wavelength. See, it's not it's not just him. It's like when you have when you have your your first dog, mm-hmm. and you see all the cute things that it does, and then you have your second dog, and you realize, oh, that wasn't just a cute thing that my dog did. All dogs do that. Oh, right. Ah, I see. He's he's England writ large. Yeah, or, or small, England whatever. is England is Mike, or hipsters like it. Whatever. There, yeah. it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is, it is, it is strange. There are a lot of things and yeah, and I don't always agree, but I don't agree with any of you guys. So good for him, you know, good for him for moving on and, and doing other stuff. And he was very nice about it. And we had lots of nice discussions about it. That's all I wanted to say about that. So thank you to, uh, to Mike and to Jim. We haven't spoiler smotted in a few weeks, have we? We've been pretty good. Yeah. Well, we're waiting for, you know, season three of the leftovers to get done before we can go to town on that, but we do, we got to wait it out, right? Ooh, you got a short non-spoilery feeling? Not as good season two. My short, not spoiler season uh, feeling. Co-signed. Yeah, yeah. Also, Matt um, feels like you know Christopher Eccleston is kind of really right on the bu- bubble with that character these past two seasons. Yep, Great yep. character, but accent gets a little bit crazy, and mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like as wonderful as that actor is, he loses the thread a little bit on on what he's doing. And this year, it's felt off to me. And his his has been one of my favorite characters on the show. I still feel like they can pull it out, and I still think it's something special overall. And this is the last season, so I, I still think uh, the show overall stands up. Uh, but thus far, two definitely seems like the peak. Yep, which makes for a nice little you know curve, like one ramping up to a, a hell of a thing, and three winding down. So I feel like it's it's a nice 
Uh, what's funny, because like, um, my wife, whom I love, she watches the next time on part of a show, which drives me bananas. I just, I just want to rogue one over my eyes and just like, no, I don't. Yeah, we, we should, we should talk about that the the next time on because I have a similar situation going on here. I would for the well, most part. We got time I'm with you, which is we talking I, about Matt or are we talking about uh, the, the the? Do you watch the next part? The next time on thing. Okay, right? all right. So I'm with you on that in that. Uh, can, I, can I close one little it? loop? One, one little loop just to oh, close. Go ahead, go ahead on uh, this that. is very go quick. All, all I wanted to say was that, and the reason I was bringing that up is because if you're totally caught up through that part, a character that I have been sorely missing all season will be coming back next week, and I'm very excited about that. I also wanted to say shout out to Judging Amy because I think she's really good on here, and it's been nice to have more of her. I think seeing her character enriched has been very good for the show. I never made that connection because I never watched that show. But now that you said it, I'm like, oh, I know who you're talking about. She's been in other things, too. I love the way she looks. I love I love the way they do up the women on this show. This and Handmaid's Tale both. I love the makeup and like just the way that they they don't make them like unattractive, but they're clearly not making them uh, as... Uh- I'm watching Fargo too. Speaking of uh, actually seeing, seeing Nora in two places, I'm watching both those shows at the same time is a little freaky. Isn't she great on there? She's so good. She might as well be Canadian. She's so good. Judging Amy, Amy, NYPD Blue, Family, Family. Oh, that's her family. I thought there was a show called Family Leftovers. Anyway, that's all. I just want to close that loop. Also, you know, I could do with more Kevin. I kind of, I really, I know he's the star and everything, but like, he's been sort of like, I don't know, was he shooting Guardians of the Galaxy or something? Yeah, I think you'll be seeing more of him before mm-hmm. the before the thing caps off. Seems like it's going in that direction. Seems like it kind of would need to. <laughs> yep. Okay, so uh, there there are different many different kinds of people in the world. What one kind of person is the kind of person who loves movie trailers. This is not in the notes. We're just winging it here. But as we've identified, at least for myself, I have a lady friend who definitely likes to stay through the. Show me what's coming in the next episode. We both like watching the recaps because we both our memories are getting bad. I love the recaps; those are important. But I am very much against the next time ons. So actually, I'm going to rewind a little bit and go to the recaps because you made me think of something. Uh, yeah. We also watch the recaps for the same reason because you need your memory jogged. But I have always been and continue to be very conscious of the fact that previously what they, what, on, what they choose to show you is super important is, to that is episode. A spoiler. It's a spoiler. Like, they are they are at this point. It's so easy to tell. Yeah, if there's lots you of know, flashbacks can, with a character you haven't seen this yet this yeah, season. Yeah, like go back like seven episodes and, and give one line and you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen in of this course. episode. Not just that that fact will be relevant, but that you can spin the whole thing out. So in some respects, I would avoid those if I could and do avoid them if I can. Like obviously if I'm binge watching or whatever, I don't want to do the previously on because I just saw it two seconds ago and I don't want it to be telegraphed. But if it's like a weekly show or longer than that between episodes, I will do it. So now for the next time on, I am a reflexive, immediately delete from the TiVo before watching the next time on things for almost all shows, which drives my family nuts in varying degrees. Well, but the, just uh, shows, the, your your tidy housekeeping of get it off the drive once it's done? No, like not watching it. Oh, not watching Okay, you know, sorry, and, sorry. And then I just reflexively delete it because then we think we're done. But it's like, well, you didn't want to watch it. Maybe I wanted to see the next time on and you just deleted it. And anyway. Um, I, 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 but, agree with, I agree with everything you said. I mean, down to the... Um, if, yeah, when I'm binging, I do the same. I'm just repeating what you said. But when I'm binging, I, I will always skip those. But I mean, there, it's such an art form. Like making a trailer, it is really, a, I really respect the art form of being able to put together just the right amount of stuff that, you know, I think it, there's higher stakes with a show 
like leftovers. Like with Veep, even if they telegraph a little of what's going to happen, it's, it's the implementation oh, on that show that's, yeah, that's what's so great. But even Veep, all they're doing is running some jokes that you could have seen in context that would be better. Right? right. I don't need to know what's happening next. But, but what I was saying is some shows I do watch the next time on. I'm trying to think okay. of, there's one I can think of right away. And I'm trying to think of any other ones. Survivor, which I still watch. I always watch the next <laughs> Really? Time. Yes. The reality show? Next... Yeah, yeah. Wow. I've been watching it since the beginning. I had I'm... no idea that was still on. Yeah, it still is. Um, still That's the same cool. show. And and I watch the next time on for that one because it's not, despite clever editing and everything they do, and I think it's not, strictly speaking, a, a narrative, right? It is just a bunch of things that happen that they turn into a narrative. And... And I don't really care. Like I don't. I don't feel like I'm being spoiled because everything that happens in the thing is silly game show stuff. And even if it's like, you know, big emotional moments or whatever. Like, I, for some reason, I'm perfectly fine with it. In fact, I want to see what's going to happen next week, so I know whether next week's episode is good or not. Um, is there any other shows I do though? But I think the less I care about a show, the more likely I am to tolerate seeing the thing, seeing the the next time on. The more I care about the show, the more I don't even want to watch the previously on. And mostly I don't watch shows that I don't care about that much, but there are a few that are sort of lighter fare that I'm willing to veep. I, I don't, I'm not interested in next time ons for veep or previously ons. Cause I just feel like, uh, I don't need the context for mm-hmm. the previously on and the next time on, I'm not getting anything out of it other than you just trying to ruin a bunch of jokes. It's like, you know, movie trailers. One thing I will say, I wish this was so big for lost. I feel like it's been big for walking dead, but I can't remember specifically, but I love when they do the, catch up. I know this is not, this is antithetical to your way of watching a series, but I, I wish they would do more of the like, here's what's happened up till now on Game of Thrones. Well, Game of Thrones, you know, they do that. So, you know what I mean? It's kind of handy though to go like, okay, here's, here's everything that's happened up till now, like even like a season at a time. It's not the same thing as having watched them, but if you're like me and your brain is turning into pudding, it is a nice way to go, oh, that's right. That's when the three little dragons came out, you know? I wish they did that more for more shows. I do like Wikipedia or other like recap type things where I just need to get the plot points because I, I do mostly remember it. I just need to be jogged. And sometimes the, the little montage previously on or even the long catch up type things are too disjointed for me to put everything together. I just need to read a sentence like this person did this and did that. And this person went there and this happened and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I now I remember this. Uh, and in the full up re- uh, recap type thing, a text version it's not the same as the previously on where they're giving you three little snippets or even not the same as an extended catch you up to where the season is before you begin the new one, because those are all targeted at things you need to know specifically for the upcoming season. Whereas the recaps were written back in time in context. And so they're not, they're not biased one way or the other towards things that will be important later for the most part. Right. So that's, that's the way to go for me uh, with those type of things. Where does your wife, I could ask, where does your wife stand on trailers? She doesn't care. She watches them all. She doesn't care. Mm-hmm. What are the shows that she likes? Uh, I mean, we, we watch most a lot of shows in common. My weirder shows I do without her. So Leftovers is without her. Uh, uh, some shows that we watch together I like more than she does. Like Mr. Robot, I clearly like much more than she does. And even shows that we're mostly watching together, like Humans, that I had to catch up and watch the end of for The Incomparable. Yeah. She's just now finishing Humans, so I guess she wasn't that into it. But stuff she watches on her own that I don't watch with her. She liked The Good Wife. Uh, she liked Burn Notice, I think, when it was on. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, sort of like middle-of-the-road, gentle character and family-based shows. Did she do uh, Call the Midwife? Don't think so. Uh, she likes uh, those Hallmark movies, you know? Oh, for real? The Hallmark Network 
uh, things. I watched one of those. Uh, she watched Bunheads when it was on. Are, the, are those what I think they are? They're, I think of those being as a little, like like a Lifetime kind of movie. Yeah, they're a little bit. They're, they're like wholesome. melodramatic. They're, they're wholesome. But Lifetime is about like there's always you know home invasion and like women in peril. And not not without Hallmark my daughter. Movies, yeah, yeah. Hallmark movies are more sort of like nice, gentle family movies. I think she also watched Gilmore Girls, but I might be wrong. Oh. Um, so good. Anyway, does, she, she has her shows, I have my shows, and we have our shows. Hmm. It's a complicated uh, ecosystem of television. Well, it is, and also then there's the different sort of... So you take something as simple as uh, relatively straightforward as the way you, you're putting it, which is very sensible, which is like, okay, um, there's the shows, there's this large number, like a Venn diagram. There's all these shows we'd like to watch together. There's some she likes to watch by herself. Um, you know, there's some that I watch by myself. But then it, gets, it also does get complicated because like, for example, my wife uh, prefers to go to bed earlier than I do. And sometimes she's like, I'm just going to go turn in and watch something on the iPad, you know? And so that is often where she will watch one of the quote unquote her shows, right? And I'll be watching one of my shows in the, in the lounge. So she'll watch something like, uh, what are some of her favorites? Um, of course, I'll watch all of my terrible shows and, and she'll watch something like, um, like, the, like the America or, uh, you know, Homeland. Homeland is the one that she you likes. You don't watch more. Homeland? I did a little bit of a Tim Goodman on Homeland where Tim is with Walking Dead is kind of where I am with Homeland where like I I kind of I lost the thread a little bit and I thought it was getting a little silly. So yeah, I still watch it. The thing I like about Homeland is that each season I like a lot I like a lot about Homeland. I I, I do. Each season is like a chance to do it better because they seem so disconnected from each other. It's almost like adventures of what's her name? Like is, is barely connected to previous seasons. I know it kind of is with the through line with the characters and the overall thing, but it is is well past the point where one person's life could not contain this many adventures. In the same way that lots of sort of adventure story, you know. What, you ta- what show are you talking about? Adventures of who? Uh, Homeland. What's her name? Oh, sure. Uh, sure. Carrie. Yeah. 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 Like when they have a, a book series where there's some hero and just like 18 books in, you're like, all right, how many adventures can one person have in this right. average age or whatever? Like it's that point with Homeland. But each season... It, uh, I sort of take on its own merits and they're so different from each other that they stand out of my mind and I can enjoy them. Further. I, I, I like this, this past season. I thought it was pretty good. Anyway, that's one of our, that's one of our shows. Okay. All right. But I mean, like, you know, like with, the uh, with the, uh, like Quinn, like, you know, that kind of his, what happened with his character made the show less interesting to me. I mean, I understand, you know, they, why they did it. And I think he handled it very well. His acting and all that stuff was very good, but like, I missed the like spy movie awesomeness of his character. That's how they change it up, like that yeah. t- from season to season, different location, different scenario. Everyone is on all different roles. It's sad if you see a character that you like, you know, change in a way. Like, I like the old version better, but that's that's you know, it's part of it's part of the deal. First time I ever saw somebody hanged on a crane. Can't unsee that. Ugh. Uh, how did you feel, or how have you felt about the times where, abruptly or otherwise, the story turns to her mental health? And that becomes part of the plot. But do, that's, you, do you like that's that the development? Show. That's the show. I mean, well, they sometimes on, more than others, though. They leaned on it more heavily in the past. I feel like they're handling it in a reasonable way. Like they want to have that continuity. Like here was this person who had this problem and who was managing it with basically an increasing degree of success. And I think that is a reasonable and realistic depiction of dealing with something like this. That it never actually goes away, but you become better at dealing with it and it becomes less of a concern. But like so many other similar problems, the moment you think it's not a concern at all is when, you know, it comes back to bite you. And it's a little bit of a narrative crutch, but yeah. I feel like so much else in these things, 
uh, so much else in these series changes and is interesting and new uh, and doesn't just repeat what the past seasons have done uh, that I'm willing to give it a break on that. I love the way that's done on Mr. Robot. People get tired of it on Mr. Robot because they feel like it's the same thing over and over again. But I, I, I enjoy Mr. Robot as well. But I, I, you know, season one of Mr. Robot, I think so far was still the peak for me just because it was so amazing and new. Oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah. But I, I'm always interested in any character who can't tell what's real. And then trying to kind of like, you know, pick up the tweezers with the tweezers to try to figure out if that feeling you're having is real. I really relate mm-hmm. to that. But then also then we get into the complicated thing of she's gone to bed. She's watching one of her stories on the iPad. I'm out in the lounge watching the dingus and and I'll suddenly like plow through, you know, the first episode, which we've agreed. We've agreed. We're each going to watch this one on our own. And then we'll come back together for this other one. But you know what I mean? You get out of if you get out of sync with the person in your Venn diagram. That's why you got to be dedicated to the concept of our shows. And that's why so many things end up being my shows, because if she's not super interested in it, and I need to watch it as soon as it's out, that becomes my show, right? Because I can't, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely. not going to wait. I, I'll get spoiled on Twitter or whatever. And if she, the, for the shows that she's not interested in, I plow through those so fast. Like, or or, or sometimes I field test them for it. Like she might hmm. be interested in this show and I say, well, I'll watch the whole thing and tell you if it's any good. She doesn't really take my advice that much after the fact, but <laughs> yeah. um, because she's got her own shows to watch or whatever. But yeah, I... That's part of the reason that I have my shows, so I can plow through them way faster than she would, like way faster. Yeah. Because she goes wants to go to bed, too. She's like, one show a night, and that's it, right? And then, you know, one show a night, and I'm podcasting two or three nights a week. You do the math. How many shows do you think you can keep up with? Not many. Yeah. I think sometimes we also, depending on the show, we watch it differently, where there are a handful of shows where, like, I want the lights off, I want the devices put away, we're all going to be very quiet and we're just going to pay attention to every nuance of this show. And sometimes, you know, she's a, she's had a big girl job all day. She like, just wants to like read the New York times on her iPad. And I'm like, oh, wait, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? <laughs> I'm, I'm the worst. That's how you can tell that, you know, for a lot of the shows that are our shows are really my shows that she will tolerate because she'll be doing knitting the whole time. And it's like, right. you have to look down to see what you're doing and to keep up with the patterns or whatever. And it's like, obviously, she's not as interested in the show as I am. She's just willing to be there while it's on. And if something exciting happens, she can always ask me what happened and I'll tell her. But, you know, that's fine. That's terrible with my attention span, though, because the sh- some of the shows that I find, I mean, again, something something like Veep, something like, to an extent, uh, in a different way, Handmaid's Tale, some of my favorite shows, um, you not only are rewarded for watching closely, but you're probably going to miss a lot if you're not paying attention. Like with Handmaid's Tale, so much is is communicated visually, you know, you know, through music cues. But also, it's not just you know, as you know, Bob conversations on that show. There's a lot you have to pick up from like what's happening with her eyes. Yeah, you have to actually watch it. Like you there's ha- many have, shows well, that I watch. Yeah, you have to actually be looking at the screen. She's not looking at the screen, so she misses half the show. It's like, well, yeah. We're um, I think I, I think I've told you that like uh, Parks and Rec is is our go to like evening show and we just keep watching all of them over and over and we were watching one tonight uh actually a very funny episode so it's the one where jerry claims he's been mugged in the park and he actually fell into a river when he dropped his breakfast burrito it's a really funny episode it's got andy samberg and andy samberg plays this character with a very very loud voice he's just always talking way too loud i've seen this episode probably five or six times and it wasn't until tonight i realized that when he's on tv they cut away to a really fast shot of like a desk <laughs> A digital decibel meter over the um, review screen <laughs> where the person's having to monitor his volume. 
I mean, I've watched that show so many times. I, I still never caught that till tonight. Did it with Veep. Like with Veep, there it, everything is moving so fast. If just listen to what Richard Splett says quietly, half a second after everybody. If you don't have if you don't have subtitles on, you miss so much hilarity because Richard's stuff is going by so quickly and 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 so uh, quietly. You know, there's other shows where I don't have to, but then there are some where I feel like if I'm going to watch this, I need to really, really watch this. Yeah, for all my shows and all of our shows, I, I'm watching 100%, with the possible exception of some family shows that we also watch with the kids, like Sur- Survivor is one of those. So that is an everybody show, which means we can actually watch it when the kids are actually awake. So we watch it all together. Yeah. Those ones, I can kind of listen to Survivor. I feel like I'm not missing that much. And same thing with like uh, the... Uh, Arrow, Flash, Supergirl, which I, I watched the first several seasons of both of those until I realized they're, you know, if I left to my own devices, I would not be watching them anymore. Yeah. We watch them as a family sometimes, and I don't need to actually be watch watching those. I can kind of be half watching. So that was, th- this is a new development in my life, a, so- a, a song, a, a television show that I can kind of half watch. I still never half watch movies and don't half listen to songs, but for these few television shows in these contexts, I have developed the ability to do what I, what seemingly everyone else in the entire world does with like every TV show, which is like, I'm in the room and it's on and I consider this watching television, but I'm not really watching television, which is how you miss right. the decimal meter. Cause if you were actually watching that episode, unless it was a sub a subliminal slice, of course you would have seen it, but you aren't, you're half watching it. And so it's just a, a question of whether you're, you're glancing the TV when it comes. That's funny. Cause th- that's one of the parts of the show that they got fairly, fairly early. There's a lot about parks and rec that got way, way better after definitely after the first season and i would argue after the second season second season is very very funny but you know it really lights up and but that's the visual stuff is one thing that they definitely had all along the other thing about survivor like i haven't watched survivor in years but you know i do watch uh uh, top chef and uh, project runway and you know i (laughs) i consider those to be fairly smart as reality shows go i mean they're still pretty silly and melodramatic but um but it, it, it's very well suited to that because it, they want to treat it like a soap opera where if you missed an episode, you can come back and you can ca- catch up in a few seconds about who got thrown out. That's the only real change to the story usually is there's one less person. Otherwise, every show is kind of freestanding, right? But then the other part is like given the nature of being on a cable network with lots of commercial breaks, they're constantly, they're always, and Gordon Ramsay does this too, they're always repeating, practically repeating Shark Tank, they show like almost like 30 seconds from like before they went away before they show you what they're going to show you now. You know what I mean? It's well suited to somebody who's splitting their attention. I can't I can't watch those kind of shows like they, I, I can't watch the reality shows that that really amp up the, you know, characters with problems. I can't watch the ones with, with commercial overlaps because that drives me just up a wall. I can't I can't tolerate it. I don't like that kind of show. I have watched the few of them I've been able to watch are like cooking related that I can kind of tolerate because I think the, the the food part of it is okay, but eventually I have to bail on those too. Survivor is nice because they, I mean, obviously they do all the editing for characters and have sort of little mini story arcs and do all that stuff, but I think for the most part they're respectful of all the participants. They turn right. no one into a caricature. Everyone is humanized in some degree. Obviously I'm sure the representations are not accurate to the actual person, but the characters they draw out of these people through editing, right? All of them, they, the, the the show seems to have an affection and an understanding of all of these characters. Oh, that's um, that's, and, a, that's and, a nice and, note. And that's why we watch it with the family. Like, and the other thing I like about the show is that they've been pretty good about uh, having it be a, a show where like half the participants are men and half the half of them are women, and the the diversity is 
better mm-hmm. than average for television shows. And again, all the people are, you know, the show tries to be respectful of the people. And when people aren't respectful on the show, the show doesn't celebrate that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I think it is a pretty good family show. And it shows, and it's an interesting game. It, sh- it shows like, it's a social game. It's a, uh, it's kind of like politics writ small. And watching people try to navigate this is just basically like season after season of people discovering what they're really like. Like, you know, especially people on multiple seasons, like you don't know what you're really like. There was that article we recently about self-awareness that I saw somebody tweet, mm-hmm. like being being aware of how you appear to other people. Everybody who goes on Survivor and everybody in general is not as aware of that as they think they are. And you go on Survivor and someone records for the camera how other people react to you. And it's it makes being successful in that game very difficult. And then if you're on a second or third time, you can see the people who are able to learn and change, uh, you know, from that experience or just repeat the same mistakes and just seeing all sorts of different people have very different skill sets for navigating this game always, which is surprising, surprisingly incongruous uh, based on their their age, their their occupation there everything about them if you were to look at them and stereotype them you you would not guess how what how they would end up manifesting in this show what kind of character would they be right how right. successful will they be in the game how will they play and just a year after year that i think is a good it's a good thing to be exposed to and in general i think it's a pretty wholesome show but you know when you get down to the nitty-gritty details like it's, it's the same show over and over again we watched it for 20 something seasons we've seen them all and so you know i feel like i can check twitter for certain sections of it when they're just doing a challenge like yeah yeah yeah, i've seen this before someone's gonna win and i'll wait until that happens right right yeah it's unusual to find uh, a legitimate <laughs> three quadrant movie it's unusual to find a movie that all three of us really 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 want to watch a lot of times mom is a good sport if it's some dingling like comic movie that we want to watch and she does like them she likes them a lot but it's also strange that what we do break off uh to like what is a kid movie for I mean, basically, if it's a comic book movie, usually it's something that my daughter and I see. But then it's like right now they're reading Lord of the Rings. Like they they read all, oh my God, they read all the Harry Potter books and they are now reading, and this is in addition to Ellie reading like two books a day right now. At night, they're doing Lord of the Rings. So like, it's funny that some of the fantasy books are are their favorites to do together. It's just fun the way that can break down in kind of un, unusual or surprising ways. Yeah, and I think a lot of that stuff it falls into the category of, I wouldn't go to see this on my own in the theater, but it's a good family movie and I would probably rent it. So let's go, all go see it together. We're always looking for the thing that all of us want to go and see. And there's right. enough of them that I don't think it's a problem. Like we are, I think we are pretty successful at, uh, you know, the time we actually want to go to the movies, there is something that we will see and we will all go see. We just saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is a great example. We all saw Guardians of the Galaxy 1 together. We all liked it. We went to see 2 together. Right up the middle. It's good when the kids get old enough where you don't have to worry about them be get, being scared too so much. Wait, wait, wait. What's the, what's the judge? Give, give me final judgments. What was your what was your thought on it? No, I was good as the first one. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Hover. You can learn more about Hover right now by visiting hover.com. Now, if you own a domain, you might know about who is privacy. You might have heard of this. It's a domain feature that keeps all of your information away from prying eyes. And if you don't own your domain with Hover, you're probably paying $10 or more to keep that personal information private. That's right. With most of the other domain registrars, you have to pay to stop your personal information from being passed on to others. What well, Hover, who is privacy, is free because Hover believes that privacy isn't an add-on. They believe it is your right. 
Hover know what you want from a domain service. You want an easy experience and you want your personal information kept private. Well, it is your information after all. And wouldn't it be great to have customer support that's easy to access? Well, Hover has a no wait, no hold, no transfer telephone support system. So if you have any DNS troubles, they're going to be there to fix it. That's what makes them so awesome. They just pick up the phone. Now, after hearing all this, you're probably regretting registering your domains elsewhere. You would not be the first who's got two thumbs and regrets registering elsewhere. That's me. That's me. I'm Hoverboy. Well, you no longer have to be envious about Hover's simple interface and their dedicated customer support because mm -hmm, you can transfer your domains over to Hover and enjoy a better way to manage domains. There's never been a better time to do it because Hover's running a limited time, 40% discount for any domains transferred in June. The transfer itself is free, and then you get 40% off the price of an additional year on your domain. That is crazy town bananas pants. And if you're wondering what happens to the remaining time you have left before you need to renew it, well, you get to keep it. How about that? That's right. You keep all the existing time left on your domain, and Hover adds another year to it. What is happening? That's just not even right. Don't put it off any longer. Please go. You're going to get 40% off an additional year on your transfer when you go to hover.com slash transfer my domain. That's one word. Hover.com slash transfer my domain. Our thanks to Hover for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. This actually potentially brings us straight up to our topic for tonight, unless you have some other follow-up. Pixar. Let's do it. Uh, what ails Pixar? There was an article uh, going around. Let me open this up. So there was uh, an article that was posted on The Atlantic for their June 2017 issue. So the current issue, an article written by Christopher Orr called How Pixar Lost Its Way. Uh, the deck, for 15 years, the animation studio was the best on the planet, and then Disney bought it. And he has written a relatively short article where he makes, well, no spoilers, but he makes something like, tries to make a case for showing that Disney's influence has made, for some reason, had an influence on the Pixar movies that get made. I'm trying not to editorialize, but he believes that essentially, um, starting at the time that they they full-on became part of Disney, what was the next movie? Cars 2? That basically starting in, help me out with the year on yeah, this. After, after Toy Story 3 is where he put, draws so the So 2010 line. and into 2011 says that basically everything, almost everything since then has been less good. There are notable examples, but that that he wants to make a case that uh, Disney is ruining Pixar. You can see this in the products. And the, and the thrust of his reckoning kind of seems to come down to because Disney demands rides for the parks and the rides because they're for young kids have to be on more recent movies. And so uh, I wanted to talk to you about that because I saw this going around. I read it. I have feelings about it. Um, and of course, the natural thing to do is ask you, what did you think of the article, How Pixar Lost Its Way? Do you think that, what did you think of the article? Because I really want to talk about this article. But I also want to, you know, on the same track, talk about our, our opinions about like what that relationship between Disney and Pixar means to you. So jump in anywhere. I don't think this was a good article. I think it was uh, a terrible article. <laughs> I, I think this article is I a agree, list of things. I agree with oh. this article, and yet everything he says in here, I'm like, show your math, sir. Yeah, Where did you it, come it up with this? Of, it is a list of things that happened. That is the, a large part of the article is a list of things that happened. Sometimes there is single adjective editorializing with no support. Also, John, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but happened. sometimes events happen, but I don't know if you noticed, sometimes they happen in order. 
over certain right. years. And and film A was followed by disappointing film three and also mediocre film B. Ergo? Like, <laughs> and no, there's not even ergo. Like <laughs> there is no strong case made for cause and effect or anything. There are some sly implications, like you said, about merchandising and sequels or whatever, but this article was not interesting interested in building a convincing case of anything. It was interested in stating a bunch of things that happened, giving flat unsupported opinions about the things which you can get away with if there's general consensus like i don't think you have to delve into like cars 2 being disappointing you could but i at the very least even a news article would make feints in that direction to try to say like here's how much it earned here's how much its predecessor earned here's like what reviews were generally negative or positive like you don't have to like you know support your your you know conviction that cars 2 was bad or whatever but this this article was like I I kept reading and reading and reading, and then the article ended. I'm like, where where is the case that you're making? And I have some ideas, like you said, I, I agree with a lot of the it's, sort of it's super frustrating. And yes. I have some ideas about how it could be, but I, I just want to set this article aside to say the only reason we're talking about it is because we both have these feelings. But the article itself does almost nothing to illuminate the situation, except for like you said, saying Disney merchandising equals more sequels. And even that I feel like is not supported by the, oh, I'm, I'm not, before we get into like the, the meat of our own feelings about this, I'm not about to let this guy go. No, this was super frustrating. And he did, he did, it turns out where, where he thought he's ready. He's really going to get you on the hook. Cause his lead is to basically tell an anecdote about somebody who thinks that all these sequels are a bad idea. Oh, guess, boom, surprise in your face, Ed Catmull sucker. And you're like, Oh, it doesn't work. If you've read the book and know where the quote is from before he gets to the turn. Okay. So I want to, I want to hear that. Um, but I thought, cause I went into this thinking, Oh man, I don't even want to see what Dr. Wave has to say about this. I, and, and now I fear how much I've ha- I, I have the same, not conclusion. I have the same observation as him. Uh, his conclusion about how he got there. I have anyway, just to let, get, get this behind us. Here's two, two major things about this were frustrating to me. Um, the one thing that, he like sort of what you're saying like okay so you're saying what is bad or different now and what he's saying is bad and different now is he does not like pixar movies as much as he used to that's the problem the problem is the he he's like old rem guy he liked old pixar movies and now he likes them less was my main impression about what drove him to want to write this then the next part is he's got a theory about that his theory about that and his speculation about this is that that's because pixar got bought by disney so Part B, I don't like Pixar movies as much as I used to, and I started liking them a lot less at the coincidental same time that Disney bought them. Okay, that's part two. And then we move on to, I guess, really the final part is, and therefore, here's how I show my math for making this connection between A and B. And this is the case that I'm going to make for how, how Disney intervened with Pixar and like sort of how you can see it. And it's just not there. And so I, even though I was kind of with them for the first parts, once you got to the last part, I was like, you know what it is? I've been reading so much more Washington Post and New York Times and just reading more nonfiction that's very, very well done and well-researched. I mean, Maggie Haberman, Haberman would have 35 sources for this story, right? Molly Haberman, is that how you say uh, it? But, but I mean, it's not even, if it's an opinion piece, support your opinion. If it's a reporting piece, support your support reporting. Support facts, yes. Uh, support, and like, again, like, if you're listing about a, a bunch of movies that came out, facts that you can supply that would support your argument that these films were less successful than their predecessors, that you, you could compare them based on factual things. And if you're doing an opinion piece, you have to explain why this one was worse than the other one 
with more than literally a single adjective added into the sentence that that lists the release date of the movie. And then this movie came out. This like I, I wish I saved that paragraph. Like it, literally, like three sentences in a row, each of which gets a single adjective that is like mediocre, lackluster, or like he hand waves over up pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, and says, oh, that was Inside Out, and that was a good one. But anyway, back to my point. Back and to so my point. I, I feel yeah. like he's got two main things that he's going for here. One is the sequelitis thing and Disney and rides and merchandising and, you know, the uh, the sort of Disney influence of making you make sort of straight-to-video, not straight-to-video, whatever, that the Planes movie, the spinoffs, like the Disney machine needs to be fed and the Pixar was previously unwilling to make lesser material now is making lesser material under the auspices of Disney. And... I don't think that helps support your argument as to why the flagship Pixar movies are bad. Two, the one that I can, we start to get into our opinions and this starts to get closer to uh, what I think about what's going on uh, at Pixar in recent movies is that Lasseter and Catmull being pulled over to Disney and being split. Right. Uh, like, do they have, do had they a bunch have of too good much movies to do? And now, like, yeah. you know, they're, they're, stretched, they're stretched too thin. But that's not supported by anything either because there's a million other times that those two uh, were involved to greater or lesser degrees with uh, Pixar movies and they came out great. Uh, but, and that, uh, and again, it's not, it's like circumstantial evidence. Like here's what happened. And then the next movies were bad, except inside out was really good, but let's just ignore that. Well, and also that you should, let's call out something that is, should be sitting in plain sight, which is, so he's making this case of saying like, you know, you guys, Pixar used to be really good. Something changed. And I'm pretty sure the thing that changed is Disney. Okay. Well then let's, let's start showing our work on this one. And at this point, I'm going to be a little bit John Syracuse, like you were with Isaacson, which is like, okay, well now what it, so when you found out about that, or when you learned that, how did that make you feel? Did you want to go and like respond or go ask a question about that? Because here's my question, uh, who or what force at Disney nefariously made this plan to go into Pixar and make them do all of these things that are so terrible? Cause that's the implication. The implication is that Disney is exercising influence over Pixar creatively, business-wise, to say in a way that we would have to imagine would be antithetical to how Pixar and John Lasseter and Ed Catmull think, right? But it, he doesn't, he's not, he's not saying how this happens. And so, I mean, at this point, really, it's, it's more of a lucky conspiracy theory because my question would be, okay, when you went and asked Pixar about this, what did they say? Because it seems to me like John and Ed would probably push back pretty hard on, on a meeting in which they were told to make theme park rides. And if that if that is a meeting that happened, I'd love to hear about it because I doubt that happened. No, they, they, John, John Lasseter loves theme park rides, but I feel like that is a separate question from the production of movies. Like uh, Disney, but not, Pixar not putting is, the theme park right right before the horse. Not not saying that we have to go feed the maw of Disney. And so, uh, like Voldemort comes in and has a big meeting and makes them go do all this terrible stuff. I, I just don't see them doing that. I, I think they they did that on their own. Uh, but I you know. It's, but I don't think that, again, I don't think that takes away from uh, the movies at all. Like, uh, Disney Pixar is an Apple Next situation. Disney didn't take it. But you take it to, my point, I mean, yeah. to get done with this stupid article, do you understand my point with the article, though? Is that, like, if he wanted, and I, I like I say, it's a Syracuse on Isaacson situation here, which is like, okay, well, give me some support in facts or show me that you've made any effort to go beyond looking at Box Office Mojo and Rotten Tomatoes and your own angry moleskin to decide. He doesn't even cite that. He doesn't even cite Box Office numbers. He doesn't even cite other reviews. It's just, you know, you get get a single word here and there. But as I was saying, like like with Apple Next, uh, Disney didn't take over Pixar. Pixar took over Disney, basically. Like that's why (laughs) there's a reason their movies got good. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, that's if you want to draw that cause and effect relationship, there is ample evidence for that and tons of support and lots of articles about what happened when Disney and Pixar came together. Well, the Pixar people came to the Disney animation people and made a lot of changes and did a lot of things differently and made a bunch of good movies. And 
that is the it's not supported in this article but supported by by surrounding articles that have been done in the past the idea that some attention that was previously exclusively focused on pixar by some important people was now focused uh, partly on disney and that took that attention away from pixar but i think that still doesn't explain the the output and the sequels and all the other stuff and i i think John Lasseter loves theme park rides, and I think he loves cars, and I think Toy Story was shrewd, and that you could tell the, the sell the toys and stuff like that. None of that takes away from the dedication of the people who are making the movies. Who right. like it's one thing to understand that if you make a movie about toys, a it's easy to render with the technology available at the time, and b you'll be able to sell toys. That's just smart, but it does not. It doesn't have to, and evidence has shown that it has not affected the movies themselves. You make the movie, you make the really good movie. It's like. You can't have the theme park ride without the movie with characters that people love. Without without that, you have to make the thing first before you can make the theme park and the toys and everything like that. And making a thing is what Pixar has been all about, you know, from the beginning. Regardless of how smart they may have been about realizing what is, you know, able to be merchandised. And like, I mean, cars. John Lasseter. John Lasseter like loves cars. Like him as His a person. His whole office is, is filled with toys. Little right. he toys. Loves, he's loved cars before Pixar existed. He will love cars. Like, you know, and, and many could say that clouds his judgment in, in the making of the car sequels or whatever. But even that, even that comes from, I feel like comes from an honest place. But again, is totally separate from, okay, but was it a good movie or not? And that, that, that is a separate issue. Should we make the pivot at this point? Yeah, so let's let's talk not, about what not the... a, not a good article. I, I I think what he has to say. Some of the things his I, I don't disagree with a lot of what he says, but I I just I I, I want to <laughs> decry this article in the worst terms. And then we get to the question that maybe is more important than the article, which is how have your feelings about Pixar movies evolved over time? I mean, you tell me if I'm getting this wrong. And what do you think the relationship between the two companies has meant to one another? And the larger Disney group, but also in particular Pixar. What what do you think? Start anywhere you want. So, I did a, a old episode of Hyper Hypercritical. I forgot what that we were talking about, like companies that have problems. It was or... what else? It was what else? Uh, it was what else? Apple. What else? Facebook. Yeah. Google. And you said, pick yeah. So and you had a theory about what Pixar needed to do differently, and this would probably be 2011 or 12. Right, and uh, I think that where I'm talking about what you know. What what problems does Pixar have? At the time, Pixar could do no wrong. They were riding high. Uh, you know, there was maybe some glimmers of the, the, the fact they were fallible. I forget what the timeline is in terms of the release dates of movies. But what I was saying at Eldom at that time is was about the company challenging itself and, you know, sort of... Uh, Taking risks. Yeah, right. And I think that I'm going to set that aside and say that is a thing. But none of that was about how can Pixar get even better? That was not an explanation for what happened to Pixar so that they're to explain them somehow being worse now than they were in the past. Mm -hmm. So even though I did that whole podcast about that, I'm saying that's a different thing. That was me saying, you know, similar to how I talk about Apple, you're great, but how can you be even greater? And this, the question we're talking about now is based on the premise that somehow Pixar now is not what it once was and what happened. So I'm going to set aside that episode and say we're not talking about that my explanation if i accept the premise that pixar is somehow lesser or they're you know or, or like that the string if you just look at the past like five or six movies they had and you look at the my personal opinion of those past five or six movies the average review uh of the past five or six movies I'm not gonna say box office i have no idea what it is and i don't care what the box office is because i'm not judging the movies based on that but if we're uh, if i'm if i'm gonna accept that premise and i think there is something to that that 
if you just sort of do a running average of my personal opinion of the movies and also the critical review of the movies in general, yeah, um, that that has gone down. My explanation of that is super simple, and it's not an explanation anyone likes to hear, especially a company like Pixar uh, and a person like Dead Catmull who are trying to they're trying to create a system that will allow good creative output that will foster it, that will support it, that will. It will systematize everything that can be systematized. But my explanation for for the, the variability in the output is that companies don't make movies. People do. And people come and go. And people, uh, have, you know, it's like the, the greatness of so many of those early Pixar movies or, you know, any great Pixar movie, whether it be Inside Out, a recent one, or like an early one like Toy Story 2 or something, hinges so much on a few key people now mm-hmm. the movies are made by hundreds of people and it's super important but the creative process of the movies like nailing down what it is this movie is going to be before we even start worrying about execution and all the beautiful details that every someone who works at pixar puts into every single movie but you need a you need a, a, a what a uh you need you need like a uh, gordon what's the guy like the the guy that did uh, the godfather or you know you need a dykstra or you need but there or you know maybe rick baker you, you need like uh, from, from conception and writing and storyboarding and just like the guts of the movie, surprisingly small number of people nail down the basic bones. And then this am- group of amazingly talented people goes to work making the most amazing version of that that can ever exist. But there's all kinds of like sort of like not just the brain trust, as this guy mentioned, but there's somebody like what's the guy's name? Joe Ranft. Like there are these people or these other names that are not as super well known uh, outside the directors and the C-levels. But like, you know, and he had a, a very unfortunate, tragic death, uh, I think even before Toy Story 3 came out. But he's the voice of several characters, including Heimlich. But like, there's all kinds of characters like that in Pixar who were not, I mean, I, they were, I guess they're amongst the founders, but they're not the like the Mount Rushmore faces maybe. But like, I just bet you their culture or somebody like Bob uh, Peterson, but they're people who have like such, I imagine have such a huge cultural influence over like how the bar gets raised inside the organization or or just being such a like a fireball of a certain kind of creativity and collegiality, right? I mean, you do not get, you do not meet that many people in your lifetime. Yeah, I, I'm and I I'm going to lump them still in with the execution team because I think that is super important, and it's why even Pixar's quote unquote disappointing movies are so amazing in so many aspects because there are parts of it that can be systematized, and there are when you have this amazingly talented group of people who are you know hundreds of them working on this thing, they will make you know every little facet of it as good as it can possibly be. But what what I think is the, the key to the varying quality of the movies is the super-duper basics, the story, the mm-hmm. concept, and the direction. Like the three, you know, the just what is the story that you're telling? How does the story go? What, you know, what is the setting, the, you know, the concept, whether it's talking cars or dinosaurs or whatever, and then the director's vision for the overall movie, like the one person you want to put behind, you know, the showrunner and TV par- parlance, right? Those, I think, are the biggest factors. And those things, the story can be workshopped by multiple writers. They can all work on the storyboards together. They can all decide, are we going to make a movie about newts? Are we going to make a movie about dinosaurs? Are we going to make a movie about talking cars, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there are lots of people are involved in that. But in the end, that, I'm not going to say it makes or breaks the movie, but those guts and and you know the incredibly ugly process by which those guts come into being because if you look at you know early versions of any of these movies and see how they evolved getting those guts before you then execute on it 
The executing on it, Pixar does, I still think, better than anybody else. And the getting to the, getting the guts of the movie nailed down is a terrible, difficult process that I think, as much as they've tried to systematize it, in the end comes down to a small number of people working well together towards a common goal. And that's the type of thing that you can't systematize beyond a certain point. And variability has to do with people coming and going or people's creative output varying or, you know, just people moving on to different times in their lives. It's, it's like lightning in a bottle. That's, it, Hollywood is a hit-driven industry. How do you explain, mm-hmm. you know, some new movie that comes out of nowhere? And how do you explain that same person either going on to make even more great things or like stumbling? You know, it's a, for every, you know, Martin Scorsese, you get an M. Night Shyamalan, both of which have had exciting debuts that no system could produce because it's just like, uh, you know, a, a particular person in the right place at the right time and the right group of people, right? Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the legend of Pixar is like it's a machine that makes amazing movies, but there's no such thing. Like, they they got as close as they can, but it just comes down to people and a small number of people. And I think it just, like, for a couple of recent movies that have been more disappointing to critics and to myself and to maybe some other people who like the earlier Pixar movies... There's nothing you can do to make that a better movie short of, of making it a different story with different characters in a different setting or making a totally different movie. And they've done that a few times, like they've canned a few of them in the process. And maybe a couple of these could have been canned to better effect. But I, I don't think it's a fault of the machine. And I don't even think it's a fault of most of the people involved. Everything can't be hit after hit after hit after hit unless you have the same group of amazing people like burning the candle at both ends until they all die. And that's, you know, that's that's not sustainable either. Yeah. Part of it, though, is that, I mean, and this is a story that Pixar is proud of telling and the fans are happy to retell. But, you know, if you ever go on the Pixar tour, you'll hear this several times that I feel like I've heard this several times on that tour, which is that, um, you know, they, what they, one thing they did, they did well, and we have certainly said this on every episode of The Incomparable that we've done, I guess three of them now, um, about Toy Story in particular. But they've, one thing they were, were real smart about was, doing the great stories, even if they were short, but, but like very interesting narratives with great characters, but the technology um, for what they could do would have a big impact on what they made. And like you said, it's kind of a hit, it's kind of a hit out of the park if you think about it. Like we can't do human flesh very well. Like Andy looks super creepy, but the toys look awesome. And those floors, those wood floors and the little nicks on the doors, that all looks so great because that's what we can do. You go a little further along, hey, we can do plants. You do Bugs Life, right? You can do this. And that, that movie still, if you really think about when that came out, the CGI in that is still, I think, pretty amazing, uh, especially for the time. And then you get up through like, okay, we can do hair. So now we do Monsters, Inc. Not, not that that drives what story we make, but like that certainly has an impact. Incredibles. Now they've mastered water. They've done Dory. Incredibles, they have, you really see the execution. Incredibles, easily one of my total favorite Pixar movies. Uh, one of the great action movies of all time. But part of that was they really nailed uh, certain surfaces. In particular, they'd gotten great at hair. They'd gotten great at water. And they found a way to really deploy that. And now the thing is, though, like, like good dinosaur looks really, really awfully good. It is just from a straight technical implementation standpoint. I think that stands alongside Wall-E as the most staggering. I can't believe that this is an animated movie, animated movie. But, you know, is it the story? Is it the what? I don't know what it is. But even though they continue to advance with the technology, I, I liked Kubo more than a lot of recent Pixar movies or, you know, there's 
and again, this is a high bar, but jump in and save me here. But it just seems like for a long time, story, technology, you know, people and heart really, really drove things in a way where it's amazing what they could do given that technology. Well, now it seems like they have almost endless technology, but like, I have no desire to watch Brave again. It just would not occur to me to ever put Brave on again. I don't know why everyone trashes Brave. I like that one. I, I don't can... dislike it, and I love being in the theater for it. But like, it doesn't. It doesn't stick with me. And this I, I, is the Pixar yeah, test for me. Is like, like, do I obsess about this movie? And I still think about Wally a lot. For example, yeah, I I, I think Brave was interesting, uh, and so I, I I give it a lot for the everything about it, the storytelling, just the events that happened, like how, you know, it, it is unconventional in, in surprising ways. And that is also off-putting to some people in those ways. I'm not going to say it's the left, the, the leftovers of Pixar movies, but it's some weird stuff. Going well, on. no, cause like the, the whole, if, unless you really think about it, that whole bit where her mom is a bear is very weird. And I'm going to mm-hmm. say, I think it's troubling. I think it's disturbing. Like, it's not like <laughs> macabre, it's not eldritch, but like it is that whole thing is there's it's the first time I ever my daughter ever cried in a movie ever. She's cried maybe two times. Yeah, in my son cried at Wally though. So, but it was kids, when you know it was, it was a very unusual. I looked over and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? She never cries in movies, but there's something about the sadness of her mom being gone, and the, I think that you can't communicate. I just want to, I do want to give them credit, and I want to, I want to give them the obligatory credit for finally not finally, but for having a female lead who was very interesting and strong. I would have gone further with some parts of that, but anyhow, uh, but it's, it's not a stick to your ribs movie, you know? And even with Kubo, like I saw the end of Kubo coming a mile off. I mean, how could you not see what was going to happen there? But I still thought it was delightful. And then at the end I cried when, when all the uh, relatives yeah, were there. I mean, Kubo, Kubo had a similar thing going for it in that it was a unconventional storytelling. It was not constructed exactly like down to letter, like sort of normal Western hero stories. It was one of those in disguise, right? And I think it had enough weirdness. Oh, I in it was very like Japanese. It was very like like you always talk about with Miyazaki, with like, well, did it happen that way? Doesn't matter. It's just that's part of the movie. It doesn't matter if the cat was talking to her. Yeah, for things like Brave, I don't know. I, that's that's a, a movie that had troubled development uh, that, that that we know about from like Pixar in terms of shuffling people around. Um, and uh, with a lot of these productions, like once the train gets going, it's very difficult. Like you have to. You have to have the bones of the movie right. Yeah. And then you have to execute on it. And you're mentioning like how the good dinosaur look really good. I feel like this is one of the things that Pixar does very well is that there still are challenges. It's not like, oh, they can do anything now. Every there's challenges for every movie. Every you know, they're always it's not they're pushing the envelope, it's like that they they can do things better or conceive of doing things with fewer cheats or make a visual that they couldn't do before. And to Pixar's credit, for the most part, it seems like that part of of their movie making machine is well and truly independent in terms of quality and much like ILM, like that ILM will do amazing effects for a crap movie. Like that ILM is like, we don't care. We're going to do the most amazing job you've ever seen on this scene that you give us in your crap movie. And your movie is crap because your script is crap and your idea is crap. But uh, the ILM effects that you pay for in this movie are going to be amazing. And mm-hmm. so Pixar, right. I'm not saying they're like, we don't care that your movie is crap. Everyone wants to make the movie the best they can be. And the department that that knows how to execute and come up with a way to do giant schools of fish or big running water that the dinosaurs are going to go in, they're going to do the best job you've ever seen at that because they are the best in the world at it. And they can't be entirely concerned. Like, they don't have control over 
the bones of the story. That has already been set down. Now, everyone at Pixar is, you know, we'll take ideas from everywhere. Everyone contributes a free forum for ideas, blah, blah, blah. But at a certain point, you are making the movie as it was designed to be made. And you can have lots of feedback and say, I think this should be done. But, you know, and things do change in that process. I'm not saying these people are just like, oh, you're just an execution machine. Do what I tell you. That's not it at all, mm-hmm. right? No. But I believe that the the quality of the work that those people do, independent of their creative feedback, it's easier for practitioners to do an amazing job of that the harder job in the movie making enterprise is figuring out i'm not going to say it's the writing like i I feel like i am for for someone who doesn't write a lot i identify a lot with writers Mm -hmm. and i I get to the point where i feel like they get they get short shrift in hollywood and in general that like like isn't the writing the whole movie and of course anybody who is like a director or cinematographer like no the writing is nothing it's all about the pictures on the screen it's a visual medium but from my perspective it's all about the you know it's all about the performance we were able to get that day or so the actors are going to say it's all about the 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 performances i don't care what's on the page it's about my performance but uh, i am definitely someone who puts a lot of stake in the writing in the story what happens right and i feel like you can start from that and then if everyone executes to the best of their ability with good feedback from everybody in the whole Pixar machine, you get an amazing movie. If you start with something where like the bones of the good dinosaur, there's nothing that the execution team could have done to tweak that story or to fiddle with it or to, to somehow execute better on some aspect of the, the creation of that story. Even if it comes down to like, we should cut the scene and we should have this thing happen at a different time. Even if that type of feedback is happening mid flight and they make expensive, uh, you know, Restoryboard the whole second thing and come up with a new ending. Yeah, the the bones just aren't there, and there's no way you can fix that. And so that that I feel I like don't it, remember what happened in that movie <laughs> apart from thinking this is really disjointed, and I I'm not sure they know. Like they do that thing where they kind of hop between different levels of reality or of uh, verisimilitude, where you're like, wait a minute, so these can talk and these can do, and like what it's it, like what and, you and know. It's not, and it's not bad. Like none of these movies are bad movies. Like I I remember no, I have fond feelings for the Good Dinosaur, and I thought it was kind of nice, and they all have the little bit of moments. It's like, but did it have as many of those great Pixar moments? Do you feel like it held held together as a whole in the way that you expected? And if it doesn't, it's not you know you would say like. It's a it's a good movie. It's well executed. There's nothing bad or embarrassing. The, all the writing in it and all, all the dialogue in the general story is fine. Yeah. But because the bar is so high for Pixar, this is one of the quote unquote bad Pixar movies. So it is very you know it's kind of unfair in that way. Well, it's it's the stuff like this though that's raised inside out in my estimation, which I loved at the time and I, I liked it fine. I like. I mean, it's just you know how do you compete with that run that they had from say Toy Story. I don't have it in front of me, but like say Toy Story 2 through really Toy Story 3, right? I mean, just all those, like with the exception of Cars, it's just an unbroken string of like... I think Inside Out is right there with them. I think it's better than some of those early movies. Well, I, I think Inside I, I've Out is, grown it, to feel more that way. That, that What that movie gets away... Not what that movie gets away with. What that movie accomplishes and the way that it does it is also very, very weird. It's very strange. And there are very few movies in the last five years that I've thought that much about for weeks after seeing it. Yeah. And I feel like Inside Out is the perfect counterexample. Like, oh, there's some kind of trend. It's just who happened to be involved? What is the story? Came and Inside Out is like, as was pointed out in all the things you'll ever read about, is like the hardest possible concept to tell someone. Like if you told a group of talented people, or you have to make a movie, here's your premise, go. That is like the highest possible degree of difficulty because the premise leads to so many paths to produce a terrible movie. Like, it's much easier to do a premise of, like, 
boy hero in a medieval kingdom like go like who who can't right. do that right this is this is like you're going to be viewing the inside of someone's brain and their like characters who represent their feelings and make a movie out of that that's not an incoherent mess but you need to have these these inner you need to have have these numerous interlocking analogies that don't make they make a lot of sense from the point of being an analogy but like if you try and put all those metaphors together into the same pot you're going to run into some serious story problems. And those people have to be characters. The things inside the head also have, have to be, be characters. A little bit how does fuzzy. that make any sense? How can, they, <laughs> how can they be their own characters when they're part of this person? And then do we care about the outside world versus the inside? That is so hard to do. And the fact that they didn't just like, wow, you did this you this hard thing, you did it okay. They made an amazing movie out of it. It's like a, that movie is like a miracle. And so when I see any story that's like, oh, Pixar can't make good movies, and it's like, did you not even see Inside Out? And for a lot of people, Up. Up uh, Up is not my favorite, but a lot of people, I mean, obviously, like, I'm not an animal. I love the beginning, but uh, I, I thought it was very well done. But that's another one that I think most Pixar fans would say that is easy, that's many people's favorite Pixar movie. Yeah, Up Up has lots of story problems, too. <laughs> like, but I think a lot of people get by on the on the beginning part the of saying, oh, minutes, it's amazing, because yeah. it, it roped you in, but the rest of it is a little bit it's weird and, and yeah. doesn't hang together and you get dogs flying airplanes and business like that. Yeah, I mean, again, it has that same problem and it's that same Les Mis problem of like, you know, how much of this is stretching which way for what? You know, it's like when you get these different, it's the basic Pluto versus Goofy problem. You know, like if you think about it a lot, it's going to be troubling that there's one one dog that's obviously a dog, like a regular dog. And the other mm-hmm. one is is a, is a biped with a hat and dental problems, but he talks. Yeah, but like the fact that you have time to think about this shows that you're you're being taken out of the movie uh, a little bit. But I subscribe to to the to the great person to try to make a general neutral theory of of Pixar, and that like any any creative thing, uh, Hollywood movie type thing, you have to get lightning in a bottle for a great movie. You have to get the right people and the right idea at the right time, and then and then execute on it in a reasonable way. And the thing is, I think execution can fall down, and you still get an amazing movie out of it. But if the core falls down, you're never going to get amazing. An example of execution falling down is like Jaws, where if you look at it, yeah. like physically yeah, yeah. speaking, of not just like, oh, we couldn't show the shark, but a lot of that movie is like, it looks like a TV right, movie. They, they did yeah. a fine job on it. Like, you know, if I look at the, the art of the movie, divorced from the story and, you know, divorced from the music. And <laughs> it looks like Gilligan's Island. Divorce from the direction. Great. You're like, yeah. yeah, it's not pushing the envelope in, in, in terms of the art of filmmaking, but the bones of that movie are so good. Yeah. And the parts that they executed well on, even if you just say, just give me the music and just give me Steven Spielberg's sensibilities and give me that story and and you know, and those and those two two or three main main characters. Yeah. So many other things can be subpar quality and still you end up with one of the, the best movies uh, ever made it's right? such it's such a such a memorable movie yeah there was uh, i was listening to the uh, shaman's dot feed the um the defocused that uh joe and dan just did about caddyshack uh which will be coming up i imagine in the next couple of weeks and i you know I, i'm not asking you to agree with me but to me that that is a, that is a terrific example and they they address this in the episode no spoilers but you know caddyshack is a mess that movie is, I mean, in many, at, at the time, it was, I think, very heavily panned. Uh, for men of a certain age, like, that is the quotable movie. And that is that is maybe one of those movies that made you fall in love, as dumb as it might be. It's not going to be Porky's, you know? It's not going to be um, Last American Virgin. Like, the movie that made a junior high kid fall in love with funny stuff could very well be Caddyshack. But it is a mess. And yet, it does have... 
a certain magic to it that would be very difficult to recreate under any different conditions. And, you know, and lighting in a bottle, it's like catching lightning in five bottles to get a movie right. And yet there are so many things that you could not quite get right. I mean, just think about the talent in that movie. That that movie costs $6 million to make. And think about who all is in that movie. They had to change the entire story. They had to add add the gopher in order for there to be, be some continuity between the beginning and the end. They had to reshoot these all, huge amounts of stuff that, where they brought in Bill and brought Murray back because they realized it wasn't actually a movie about caddies. And yet they come up with that movie that like I'm quoting 10 times a week. So I just want to make the case for magic also that like, even when you get everything right, it is still so hard to make an all around great movie. So hard. Comedies are a little bit different because I think they lean so heavily on on in many cases ad libbing, but also so much on on the casting. Because yeah. Caddyshack is a great example. I think this definitely rose tinted glasses for people who love that movie because it is kind of a mess of a movie. But if it's a comedy and you have really funny people, especially really funny people with like nothing to lose, like early in their careers, who essentially at various points in a lot of these comedies that people love, it's like did they just turn the cameras on and tell people to be funny? Because if you have this cast, you can do that and assemble a movie that will make people laugh. Let's put it that way. What's the job of a comedy? You want people in the audience to be laughing. If you get the right people at the right time and you basically have them do almost anything and they are super amazingly talented, they'll make people laugh and then you can make right. a movie out of that. And uh, you know, I would say, for example, of a movie that, that is more coherent and comes together and also happens to make people laugh, like a more traditional one, like you got your Caddyshack over there, which is just an 80s mess like you said assembled from pieces made by amazingly funny people and you get a comedy that's memorable which i think is not that great of a movie and again we have rose rose tinted glasses because we were young but look at something like coming to america which is a much more coherent like is that john landis uh i don't even remember who did that one i think it um, was that eddie, you're talking about the eddie murphy movie yeah, yeah coming to america it's very very straightforward story very right up the middle mainstream hollywoodish story but that clearly that's they john, had it's a, also it's also john landis yeah, they had they had a, an idea for a story. They executed that story. It, it does not veer at all from the course that it is going. It is not like they made it up on the set and cut it together for a million different pieces. It was always going in a particular place. That movie that's just like the story with a little bit of funny, yeah, whatever, it's fine. But you get Eddie Murphy and a bunch of people he's friends with to make that mo- to lift that movie up, both with good writing, the actual script and the jokes that are written are good. And the ad libs are good. And suddenly you take your mediocre movie and you put balloons on it like an up and it becomes, you know, much greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, see you next Wednesday. So what's your uh, what's your reckon on it? You what is your investigative investigative journalism? You, you're you're gonna you're going with that uh, the people are different. It's an Occam's razor type situation. And, uh, whether it is actually literally different people or the same people who are then changed again, compare, you know. Scorsese to M. Night Shyamalan or De Niro to De Niro. Like <laughs> that people have different faces in their career where they are in, you know, that the, they're producing their best work or they're in a slump or they are producing the same work uh, over and over again, but not uh, improving on it. And whatever, you know, like, and, and it could just be down to like picking what kind of movie you make. We're going to make a movie about dinosaurs. Seems like a slam dunk. Surely you can make lots of interesting movies about dinosaurs. The movie they made about dinosaurs, you know, it wasn't terrible, but it, it seemed like, you know, the, the, this idea wasn't as strong. So is the problem with the process that doesn't kill that and pick someone else's idea to make a movie out of? 
or is the the problem that the process by which they take it and turn it into a good idea, even if it means totally changing the original idea, that one didn't work. I still basically think that uh, if you get the right people together at the right time, that that machine can make amazing movies. Now, Brad Bird is a good example. He's coming back for The Incredibles too. I don't have any hatred of sequels at all. I mean, I think the Toy oh, Story. That, that, and, that is and, the that is the single. Uh, a sequel that I've been dying for as much as I wish they would not even contemplate the idea of Toy Story 4. I'd be very excited to see Incredibles 2. I, I, I don't mind sequels at all. You make a good movie, it's fine. And I think Pixar has shown they can make good movies out of sequels. I mean, Toy Story 2 and 3 for crying out loud. Yeah, this is yeah. the, the, the prototypical example. So Incredibles 2, I'm all up, especially with Brad Bird still involved. The question is, is the Brad Bird who's making this and the team that's making it the same Brad Bird that made the previous one? No, obviously everyone's older and wiser and have done different things and have made live action movies and whatever. Right. I don't know how this is going to turn out. It could be the best thing ever or it could be, uh, you know, a, a prequel style disaster where the original creator comes back and doesn't understand what made the first one's good. But it's not like he comes in with a big bucket of Brad Bird and dumps it on everything and a great movie comes out. I mean. Yeah, but but like but he was the driving force be, behind The Incredibles and his Brad Bird is all over that movie. Like if you watch Brad Bird's work, whether it be the Iron Giant or you know Family Dog, or like he's a, he's, he, well, he's a very he's a very clear eyed and very demanding director. It sounds like he asks basically impossible things of people. And, and it was and it was a good story that, mm-hmm. that they found. They found the good heart of that story and executed on it well. And so Talking about I, the Incredibles, yeah, the yeah, it's the Fantastic Four movie that everybody's always wanted. Yeah, so I. It's, I th- it's all, it all comes down to the people, and there's only so much you can do as an institution to get that to happen. You you want to have no barriers for those people and have a process, but you want those people to want to work with you. You want to free them to do their best work. You want everyone to contribute, to improve each other's work. They're doing all the things right, but sometimes it just doesn't come together, and that's that's the creative process. And, you know, trying to eliminate that to say we can we can never allow that to happen. The only way you can do that is by killing more movies and producing fewer of them. Uh, and if there's some sort of force inside Pixar that's preventing that from happening, maybe that's a problem. But, you know, even Miyazaki, which I held up in that old episode of Hypercritical, is, uh, you know, Studio Ghibli is a great example of a company that is not afraid to fall flat on its face. Guess what? They fall flat on their face sometimes. Right. Yeah. And it's, that's that's essentially the same the same one guy who is the driving force between a lot of these things. And some of them are amazing. And sometimes you fall in your race and you know, it's that's, that's just what the creative process is like. And I, I think holding Pixar to this impossible standard that every single one of their movies has to be amazing right. is, is not useful and, and not creative and not creative. That's not that kind of pressure. And from the outside may not be the thing. Well, I'm not sure how much anything from the outside stimulates them, but I, I'm for some reason, I have two analogies and neither is good. But I remember in the days on uh, Marco's show where he would talk about roasting coffee and how there would be like a source of beans for a while and he would get it and it would be, you know, maybe a little bit different from time to time when he'd roast them. And then one time they'd be very different and he'd try a different kind, but he's always having to try different beans because the analogy being that like teams are like this too, where like there are so many factors that go into what's going to be different. So I'll go with my second metaphor, which is a team in, in sports so if you think about think about how many baseball games you could play in a year with aside from the pitcher, almost the same group every time. But then you go to a different town, different people come to your town. You play in different stadiums, and even though you are, let's say you're an above average baseball team, it's still going to be different every single night. It's just that in their case, they get the benefit of playing however many dozens of games over a season, and then at the end you get to say, okay, well how how'd you do in general? Do you get to go on to the pennant, etc. 
So I don't know if either of those analogies is any good, but I agree that the answer is probably incredibly boring and not even very sad, but just very normal, which is that when all those beans rub up against each other or throw the ball around the diamond, it's going to be different every single time. And you don't know any one factor. And now, yeah, the one part where it is, yeah, they've always been a pretty big organization, right? Mostly. So they've always had the struggles of like, you know, scheduling things and, you know, that maybe that's gone up since Disney, but I'm with you. I think the simple answer is, well, the, the, the other part of this simple answer is, I don't think their days are over. I don't think we've seen their last good movie. No, no, like I said, inside out. Like, but it's like people didn't even see that and they just want to say, well, we're going to ignore every time they make a good movie now that is like amazingly great. Yes. That we're just going to ignore that and we're just going to focus on the ones that are below the quality of my favorite Pixar movie, whatever that happens to be. Well, it's like people like you and Gray and me. If I could toss myself in with that August crowd, like I don't want to see one good announcement on the Mac Pro. I want to see two and a half years of yeah, wow. we are That's really different. dedicated. That is less creative output. Like that is, that is an achievable thing versus make me an amazing movie. We have to go soon. This is getting long. I, let's get to the difficult question then. Have you seen the trailer for Coco? I have. Mm-hmm. So have I. So on, on things like that, I think they can fool you because sometimes the premise doesn't appeal to you, but they still make a great movie out of it. Yeah, they did it, they did it in 2014, Memory Serves. <laughs> it's called yeah. Book of Life. <laughs> I know I'm missing, I'm missing big time. But when we watched that, I was like, oh my God, this is like Book of Life and Kubo got nasty in the back of the Jeep and, and made a movie. It's so much like, looks so much like a cross between Book of Life and Kubo. I know it's not, but every time I look at it, I'm stunned with how much it looks like those movies. Yeah, I mean, am I wrong? I, I, I don't, I don't know how it's going to turn out. It do, certainly doesn't look like one of those ones that is going to be transcendent. Like this, I, I, I know I was going to set aside my old hypercritical podcast, but I, I'm bringing it back in a little bit because part of what I was talking about that one is the whole systematizing of the the brain trust and how you have a seed of an idea. That the company says, let's try to make a movie out of this. And then uh, a bunch of smart people, small group, you know, the brain trust is not a thousand people, right? But they're all going to try to help you to improve your idea through a system whereby, what about this? What about that? What about that? And I was contrasting that to the Miyazaki school, where there's no one telling him what to do. He's just following his, his muse where it leads him. Sometimes it leads into amazing places. Sometimes it leads him into madness. (laughs) Um, And that's, that just is what it is. And, this process where he's like, we're going to take your idea and we're not going to let it be bad can make lots of good movies and a couple of great ones, but it can never really make a transcendent one. Right. It could be that part of the personnel relationship to that process is you have to have a core creative force, handful of people who are able to withstand the Pixar process and not have all the edges filed off their movie. Like, because that process makes every movie, including the ones that we all love, better. Like, every movie goes through that. It's not as if, like, oh, that process is great for your crappy movies, but Brad Bird just came in and he had all the ideas and he didn't listen to anybody. That's not how, you know, the, the process works on everybody, but you need to be able to withstand the feedback and incorporate it without losing, without losing that creative spark. Without It's like, you know, studio notes, but from people who actually know what they're talking about, right? Don't let your thing get watered down. Let them help you improve your movie without letting them destroy the thing that makes your movie. And by the way, make sure you have a reasonable idea. And so when I look at Coco, I'm like, I can see how this idea would appeal to them. Different setting, you know, something they haven't done before. Visually, you can see how it's going to be interesting and fun. But, you know, 
is the creative team behind this able to withstand the Pixar process or is the Pixar process like carrying them and making their movie better than they can make it on their own. But like there was no high points that to be shaved down anyway. And all they did was fill in the valleys and you get something that's the middle of the road. We'll see. You can't judge a movie before it comes out. So who knows what it's going to be. And and the fact that it may look derivative of, of uh, things that you've seen or whatever, like these movies can surprise you because like, I mean, the trailers for up surely did not reflect what that movie was going to be. And the trailers for inside out, made you think i don't know i mean you're gonna make a movie out of this oh Good luck. totally totally agreed i totally <laughs> oh, agree. i'm 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 willing to withhold judgment in a way that even even cars three or whatever the the you know i thought the trailer might, for cars this, i 3, think this might surprise i think it might surprise yeah, people i, th- I thought I mean, first of all i'm a bigger fan of, the car, of cars one than most people are just because my son loved that movie and my I saw daughter it times and i have a soft spot in my heart for it and, and the characters were that. fun this, the characters yeah. were really silly yeah, and fun and I, I thought it was sturdy and i thought there was a spark to it and guess what i like cars too yeah like the cars also <laughs> I, like, I like cars also cars Two, the movie i did not like as much but anyway really the trailer yeah. the teaser trailer for cars 3 had stakes that i surprisingly cared about and the you know a, a, a hinted premise of like yeah what looks like lightning might be really hurt yeah and it could be tackling ideas that are normally you know not touched in cars one or two right yeah uh, and I'm, I'm so much more I, interested in, in cars in cars three than I am in. Yeah, uh, I mean the, the the Jedi must end, right? Is that what that movie is saying? In the sorry, I don't want to spoil people. Yeah, Lightning McQueen must end. Um, I, I, I that piqued my interest in a way. Again, that the Coco trailer did. And not. wouldn't they? Wouldn't they at this point? Would ultimate not retribution? The ultimate, like the most satisfying they could do, thing they could do. Would be to make this like even <laughs> beyond Cars God. Three, an Academy Award-winning movie that everyone agrees is their greatest achievement of mankind. But imagine if they take a like a like a, a sixteen-degree turn, so to speak, and they make this like, what if we make Cars? I'm not saying make it like in Inside Out, but what if we took this someplace? You know, let's say like Logan, for example, with Logan, who could have <laughs> yeah, known? Yeah, rated R. R three is rated a R. Hard, hard R Cars. <laughs> <laughs> like how does it even work they don't have blood nothing in this world has blood it's really confusing the, 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 the amount of literature studying the premise of of the cars universe is I think it'll extensive. be more like cars boobies and stuff like that probably <laughs> but um, but I, I would not be surpassingly surprised if this turned out to be better than way better than you expect and maybe a little bit ambitious I could really see that happening and still be appealing the trailer was way better than I expect already. I I don't know. I I would still put it like at fifty fifty. It's probably going to be a fairly straightforward. No, no I'm whistling movie. past and the graveyard. And they just, and they just by made all means, a yeah. teaser teaser trailer for it. But uh, but no, I you know that's there's nothing preventing that because uh, again, like the uh, the the premise in the world matters so much less than the story you tell. That's why I keep going back to the writing. Good story is a good story. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. A good story and then execute well on top of it. And I have such faith in Pixar's ability to execute. All I want is for them to have a good story. And a good story could be in like literally any setting. Yep. Like I don't yep. I don't even care what it is. If it's if it's cars that talk, you can make a good story in that. An even better story than Cars 1. Um, so well, it, it I'll, I'll ditto your old opinion. I think you're the one who said this of, you know, Boy, it would be kind of neat to see them. They did this to an extent with Wally, but like a real, like straight up, like space opera would be pretty great. I still, oh, I still so, feel that so way. So many things that you would want Pixar to do that would be great because you know they have the chops to execute it visually, uh-huh. and you know, to, to, but, but again, alley it, it, com- it comes down to story. Yeah, it comes down to you know the right. The writer is king. Give me your one, two, <laughs> your one, your two, or your three all-time favorite Pixar movies. 
So Incredibles is my number one. Me too. I don't think anything is, is going to displace that because it's that, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, it's pretty close to perfect. I mean, the graphics on it are a little bit laggy, you know, a little, a little bit dated. Uh, you can see now, like, how much better things could have been. Just wait to Incredibles 2. I bet it will look so but, much better. But, you know, now. my but, goodness, you can just watch but, yeah. that movie over. There is so much to that yeah, movie. But, but it's so well done. It is, and and I think this the the guts of that movie, the, the you know the, the sort of sturdy inner structure, is you know it's good, like but it is not. You could the guts weren't so good that it would have been impossible to make a bad movie out of it. That movie oh, is like yeah. equal equal parts guts, execution, vision, and like you know the like pacing. It all comes the pacing's together. incredible. It's, you always feel like you're barely keeping up with what's going on. Yeah, and it, even when you think you're smart package. and has something figured out, like they're 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 already moving forward. Yeah, it it is the total package. Um, so that's my number one. Uh, my number two and three things already start to get fuzzy for for reasons of being a parent. Inside Out mm-hmm. always is clawing up there. Uh, Toy Story two and three jostle in my mind as well, depending on which one I've seen more recently. Is there some movie I'm forgetting that could also be vying with those guys for the two or three spots? Um, let's see for you. Well, let's just take the time. We got Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story Two, Monster Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles. These are mostly about one year apart. Mostly, Cars One, Ratatouille, Wall-E, Up, Toy Story Three, Cars Two, Brave, Monsters University, Inside Out, The Good Dinosaur, Finding Dory, Cars Three. Yeah, I think I think that's basically my rating. Wall-E would 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 be below all of those because I think there's some some you know I, Wall-E is uneven for me. Like I. I love so much the characters and and the execution, but the overall story is like eh, so that that would be uh, underneath the twos and the threes in, in the the four slots, and then it sort of tails off from there. And and, and again, it really is difficult. Like if I had just seen Toy Story one, I'd be like, wow, they got so much right in Toy Story one. Why am I pushing that one down? It's difficult, but the, my it's an, it's an embarrassment of riches because I sat down. I'm looking at uh, Pixar.com slash. Um, well, feature dash launch too, but you go to feature film section of Pixar and you, I'm looking at all these posters. I thought it was going to be a no brainer, like slam dunk, like no question. I was thinking in my mind, Toy Story three. I was like, Oh, Toy Story three, but also, which might be my favorite. That's the one I've got the warm fuzzies about for all kinds of reasons. But then I, I instantly, my, my, I'm casting about and I go, actually, you know, toys two is, uh, uh, Toy Story two is pretty great, but, um, Oh, but Wally, but the Incredibles, isn't that amazing that a number of movies, most of which came out in like a six to eight year period, that there could be that many that would vie for like a, one of your favorite movies? Yeah. And it's because they are all so different, uh, like the, in every way. Yeah, right. You have a, a superhero movie. You've got the, the, the animated toys franchise. You've got a, a sci-fi robot thing. And like, they're not even in the same animation style. Like they're all computer animation, but they don't even they're, stylistically they're like there is. They're so good at varying. Well, if you just look at these posters, look at look at how these movies vary. Yes, they're they're unbelievable variety. So much more. That's why animation is great. So much more variety than Hollywood movies because you have to put actual humans in them. They kind of all look the same, right? Animation mm-hmm. is wonderful, and Pixar takes wonderful advantage of animation. And yeah, it, and that's that's just like I say. I'm like I'm obviously I'm a big animation fan, right? Uh, this is in contrast again with Studio Ghibli, where I love their animation, but there's a through line. Like this dude draws the keyframes. He has a particular style. This guy does the backgrounds. You gotta have the some movies, flying. Yeah, the movies, <laughs> the movies look similar. Um, the worlds look <laughs> different, but they look like they're they look like they're they look like they're animated 
by the same set of people. So, you know, Nausicaa does not look like Howl's Moving Castle. Like, the, the settings are different, but you can tell that they were made by the same studio, whereas Pixar does this amazing thing where, I mean, just look at the posters for crying out loud. Like, look at, look at Brave over Inside Out. I know, I know, you're right. Such different styles. Uh, everything about them. Not not forget about the setting, just like how they decide to do the animation. Character proportions, texturing, style, like, and, you know, you could have, and you could reverse those styles and you would still have two movies out of it. Like you could, it's, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love Pixar. That's, that's the, that's the lesson here. I know too. I love Pixar. Hmm. I like the shorts. Yeah. I like them. I like them a lot. Like I, I think small fry is in probably like, obviously you got Jack, Jack attack. There's so many classics, but small fry, it brings me so much joy. Is it Angus McLean? Is that his name? The Canadian guy? I think it's Angus McLean. He's the guy who makes all the cool uh, Lego also. Which one is Small Fry's the dog one? No. Small, Small Fry's the one where, um, what's her head, goes to the chicken place with her mom and loses Buzz Lightyear in, in the ball pit. Oh, you're not talking about the, the theatrical shorts. You're talking about the, yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Yep. Uh, well, it's confusing. That, like, one, that one wasn't in front of a movie. I guess not, but like Hawaiian Vacation, was that in front of a movie? I don't think I've even seen that one. Oh, you're kidding, the Toy Story one? Um, Sorry, I just did that feigned surprise. Burn E, that's funny. I can, to our listeners, I can highly recommend buying both uh, volumes one and two. I mean, you can probably get them other places now, but we, we bought them both on the iTunes store. They are a source of endless delight. There are so many great little short movies. So it's got all the famous old you know, going all the way back to the um, uh, what's the what's the what's the lamp? Lumos, Lutro, uh, Luxo Junior, Luxo Junior, um, and then all the way up into recent ones. Um, wouldn't you agree? They're, they're like Jack Jack Attack is just a delight because it's basically like almost like a cut scene from the movie. Yeah, to- uh, the recent Toy Story ones, the Toy Story Time Forgotten, Toy Story of Terror, uh, Toy Story of Time Forgotten in particular. I thought it was like really raising the level of uh, of shorts, and that like the first of all for all these things for the most part, especially the franchise ones like the Toy Story ones, like Small Fry and stuff, the quality is in- indistinguishable from the movie. Oh, like, absolutely! Like, I mean, absolutely. just go look at the Toy Story time. Forgot there's nothing in that that's like worse than any Toy Story movie. And I love. I mean, they spent so much time like doing. I think I talked about this on the first day, like doing the design of the toys that are in that those dinosaur toys. They're awesome. I want those toys now. I don't understand why they don't make those toys everywhere. So the franchise ones, I mean, maybe it's an easier thing because they've already got all the models. They know how the things go. But, they, you know, they just make good, funny things. But then the theatrical shorts, just, again, all over the map. And it's great to see them. Um, oh, so creative. Sort of flex their creative muscles and just let people do whatever the heck they want. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But who when Piper, cares? When Piper came up, I was like, oh, God, they're going to show off how they can make stuff look like stuff. But I was by the end, I was captivated. Yeah, you don't I care was about cheering, that. Goes, I was cheering for a bird seconds. by the end. Yeah, it goes away in two seconds. Like once you're like, ooh, that's impressive. Is it is impressive? Like it and that's is, part of no. In that one though, it is really super impressive. Small fry, you got to see small fry. It's Angus McLean. I've seen it. I've seen oh, okay. it. Okay, is that you? You've mentioned it to me before, but DJ I didn't Blue remember Jay. it by title. <laughs> DJ Blue Jay, you got that's uh, where they're all they're gathered around playing. Uh, yes, well, they're they're having uh, like or whatever. Even before it appeared, as far as I know, before it appeared as a scene in Wreck It Ralph, another great Disney movie um, with Pixar help. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the, uh, the session. It's like, it's like an AA meeting mm-hmm. of disused toys that have fallen, but everything it's all so well done down to like the way that they've laid out boxes on the floor. The boxes look amazing. At the end, they show you all the menu items 
at the at the the theme is like medieval castles, but it's like fried chicken. Oh my god, it is it's and it's such a creative bonanza as they go through. Basically, the joke is that there's all of these toys that used to be giveaways in like a Happy Meal who all now have this sad abandoned life. <laughs> and Buzz Lightyear, the real Buzz Lightyear, shows up there and is like these people are are crazy and all and all, some of the concepts. Is, I'm just telling the jokes now, but all the toys are based on these terrible. <laughs> premises that make no sense dj blue jay is a blue jay who's got a turntable <laughs> you got you got what is it taekwondo which is a deer that kicks <laughs> gary grappling hook <laughs> all right you can make it that's the great thing about short someone was getting one of these you know happy meal things for their kids and realized the, the terrible toys that come with them and just how they're just you know conceptually not good execution they they're, they're not garbage. fun to play with they're ugly yeah, they're not fun to play with the kids don't even want them they're just right. garbage in all ways and they then break you before you're done eating your fries mm-hmm. <laughs> ah we love you pixar don't email us 